0: Yes.
1: Colonel Locke, is this line secure?
0: Line secure GL-12, go ahead.
1: Target area is acquired. Maneuvers are a go for 1,300 hours. Repeat, we are a go.
0: Roger that. We'll convene at the usual rendezvous point at 1,300 hours. Locke, I told
1: you I need those TPS reports done by noon today. Not 1230, not 1215 noon. I heard
0: you the first time,
1: Randy. I know personal calls during office hours, Colonel
2: To go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch podcast here on post show recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. I am joined here by Mike Bloom. And after the last little while spent hanging with the Peach Man, it's time to hang with the Pig Man, John Locke, and walk about. Oh my God, Mike! Here we are.
3: I'm so excited, Josh. I have put aside my scimitar-like tusks and especially (laughs) my surly disposition because I am on Cloud Nine right now, walking on air, because now I can walk and talk about walkabout.
2: Oh my god. Walkabout, one of the most celebrated episodes of Lost of All Time. Here we are, talking about it here on Down the Hatch. What a delight that this is just our third recap of an episode of Lost. And we are already at an episode that is in the conversation for the best episodes of Lost.
3: It's ever. all downhill from here. We're rolling down an errant podcast wheelchair, not to be stopped.
2: Mike, there's a reason this is called Down the Hatch. We're just in freefall from this moment forward.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know what? We'll, we'll land on something very nice and soft, considering both of our feelings towards the ending. So, you know what? I'm happy with the descent.
2: You know what? If we, uh, if we land and we break our backs, at least there will be some sort of ancient mystic man there to tap us on the shoulders and heal us of our woes. Uh, until we get to that point, we are the gentlemen, the mystic gentlemen here who are here to at least, if not heal your woes, then at least occupy your time for the next little while on down the hatch, lost down the hatch, a spoiler filled Rewatch Podcast, where we are discussing every episode of Lost on a weekly basis by the numbers in 108 minutes or less, or else, for now. (laughs) For For now. now. For now. For now. For now. And we'll certainly make it there. It's going to be great. Uh, We would love to get your feedback along the way we are answering your questions and comments in these podcasts. Please send that our way down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com is our email address. Definitely the best way to get your feedback sent to us. You can also tweet at Mike. He is at a Mike Bloom type. I am at Rand Howard, and always make sure that you are tagging at Post Show Recaps in those tweets as well. We would love it if you would subscribe to Down the Hatch. com slash Down the Hatch will take you to our iTunes feed, but you can subscribe to us on whatever podcast app you listen to podcasts on. Your ratings and reviews would be greatly appreciated as we are still just getting started on this voyage through Lost, and of course, a reminder that this is a spoiler-filled podcast. As we say, we're, we're going to stop giving you the spoiler warnings pretty soon, but it's still early enough that we want to let you know that we are talking about Lost in its entirety in this episode. There is not a spoiler-free section. Full spoilers for Lost are fair game, Mike.
3: Yes, uh, and just like we hunt game this episode, uh, we are targeting... Any spoiler that might pop off over the next five seasons or so. This is a show that has a lot of connecting threads and we're here to fully embrace those. If you have not seen all of Lost and you don't want to be spoiled, press pause now. Go watch Lost. It's a beautiful show. Come back. You'll be able to enjoy it a lot more without fearing getting spoiled. And we'll, we'll always be here. We're going to be here for quite some time. Forever, forever. So, we were always here. I mean, we're by the time we end this, it's going to be close to the amount of time that John Locke was paralyzed before he set off to the island. So yes. that's that's a good comparative measurement. <laughs> it's it's honestly
2: true. All right, so that's your spoiler warning. We'll give you a little bit of a buffer time to check out of the podcast if you need to by telling you about a show that you could watch right. Now, and it's called Carnival Row. It's a new fantasy series that is currently streaming on Amazon Prime video Carnival Row it's a one hour fantasy drama it stars Orlando Bloom who is not Mike's cousin it also stars Cara Delevingne
3: also set- not my
2: cousin also not Mike's cousin i wasn't going to say i didn't want to assume uh Orlando Bloom and Cara Delevingne they are starring in Carnival Row and it's set in a Victorian fantasy world that's filled with mythological immigrant creatures whose exotic homelands were invaded by the empires of man. They struggle to coexist with humans. They're forbidden to live, love, or fly with freedom. Orlando Bloom plays Ryecroft Philostrate, also known as R. Philo, a, per, a, a police inspector investigating a string of gruesome murders threatening the uneasy peace of The Row. Cara Delevingne plays Vignette Stone Moss, a fairy refugee who flees her war-torn homeland to come to the Burg, where she must contend not only with rampant human prejudice against her kind, but with the secrets that have followed her to this new land. But even in darkness, Mike, hope lives. Hope's alive. Keep it alive as this human detective and fairy rekindle their dangerous affair despite an increasingly intolerant society. So that's Carnival Row. It's available for you to watch right now on Amazon Prime Video. Go check it out. Okay, Mike, you ready for our walkabout?
3: Yeah, though I will say the college that I went to, its nickname was The Berg. So now I'm more intrigued at Carnival Row. Apparently my relatives are in it and now it takes place in where I went to college. They just take a slice of life and put it on Amazon Prime without me knowing it.
2: Yeah, they they may have done such a thing. You'll have to go and check it out and see what similarities you have with all of the monsters populating Carnival Row, Mike. uh, I assume you have at least one or two things in common. Um, Okay, let's not dilly-dally here. This is Walkabout, Mike. I feel like we're going to be here for a while, (laughs) and we should just settle in and embrace our fate. Well, I'm sitting, uh, are you? I'm sitting as well. Should we be standing for the entirety of the podcast? That would feel rude. That would feel
3: very rude to John Locke.
2: (laughs) No, he'd be like, yeah, join me. Come on, let's go for a walk. Either way, as my last name uh, allows me license to do, I am wiggling my toes as we are getting (laughs) ready uh, to talk about Walkabout. It is the fourth hour, and Bill is the fourth episode of Lost. It is directed, once again, his second episode of the series, second of many, Jack Bender. Directing walk about. It is written by David Fury, who is a, a writer for for a few episodes here in season one. Does not stay with Lost past season one, at least in writer capacity. I'm not sure about in a produce, producerial capacity, though. I don't think so off the top of my head. Uh, but he's famous for for a lot of different shows. Uh, he wrote a lot on Buffy, on Angel. He was part of the 24 writing team from season five and onward. He was part of latter day Fringe. So David Fury, very accomplished writer, and is the man. Who who is uh, tasked with ultimately bringing to life one of the most magical hours of Lost. It aired originally on October 13th, 2004, and it is a flashback episode for the one, the only, the box man, John Locke.
3: (gasps) Uh, The boxer himself.
2: Yes. (laughs) Light it up. Here we go. John Locke in front and center here on Lost, down the hatch. How excited are you to talk about this? This is going to be great. I'm this, very pumped up right now.
3: I'm very excited. I'm also very nervous. I was as nervous as I was for the pilot, which is a very beloved episode of Lost. Why? How come? Well, I, I want to make sure we do it justice. I mean, we'll definitely get to it later on in our 15 16 others, but this is an episode that many have said is not only their favorite episode, it's quintessential Lost. It's very representative and emblematic of the show as a whole. I'm sure we're going to cover every nook and cranny... T- You know, true to John Locke's nature about this episode, but this was so good to revisit. You always wonder, how much am I looking through Nostalgia Goggles, a welded-together pair of glasses that makes me view things in a much brighter light? But, I mean, this is just proof that when Lost is good, it's so damn good. And this just completely baked-in story over the course of 42 minutes and 42 seconds, ironically enough, is utter TV brilliance, in my opinion.
2: All right, so we're entering the four stories section, uh, which is not quite as many stories that John Locke fell from uh, when he (laughs) was pushed out of a window. I believe that that was eight stories he dropped. Uh, But we only got four stories in our four stories section for you today. And we will start, as we always do, with story point one, which is, you know, it's a a walkabout of sorts through the episode of Walkabout. We're going to summarize the story and what happened on screen for those of you who are just listening along with Down the Hatch and not watching along. And much uh, much of the time here, certainly in the early going of Lost, Mike, we open on an eye because, of course, we open on an eye. Uh, but really, the focus is on a foot here <laughs> as we begin with Walkabout. And it's John Locke who we are getting to revisit the plane crash of Oceanic Flight 815, we start on his face as he's kind of lurching awake and he's, you know, like he's got a little bit of blood on his face. It's going to form the infamous John Locke scar. We see Shannon is screaming again and Jin is running around screaming for Sun. And Locke is just flat on his back and he looks over at his feet and the feet are now in the focus of the camera. And those toes, they start a-wiggling.
3: See, we always wonder, wow, Lost really provided this rampant internet speculation that we see for so much today. I think another corner of the internet was really into this opening scene, and maybe that's what inspired Lost big popularity in season one.
2: Yeah, you think it, this is—the foot fetishist came out in full force <laughs> oh, for, for You gotta Walkabout. watch this show.
3: You're gonna love this guy, Locke. He's got feet, these feet, and they just—oh, man. Oh, you gotta watch this episode.
2: Yeah, the foot fetish subreddit really popped when they got to the four-toed statue at the end of season two. <laughs>
3: <laughs> they What's the story it? behind that statue? <laughs>
2: yeah, they were really pushing that agenda pretty hard. <laughs> oh, my God. But I love this, right? Like, I mean, I, I think... Uh, to watch Walkabout once and then to watch it again, very different experiences. Uh, you know, nothing is quite like your first time with Walkabout when you're not entirely sure what's happening. We'll talk about the magic of that later on. We got some great feedback about that. Uh, but but when you go back even, and, and you know the gimmick, and you know that John Locke is a man who had been paralyzed before he came to the island. Uh, to, like, watch that look on his face as he is realizing, uh, I'm wiggling my toes and I feel that right? Like, I can feel what's happening right now. Uh, And like the slow movement of putting his shoes on and getting called into action by Jack. It's just astonishing. It's just such an astonishing start to the episode.
3: And it's, you know, really buffered by the fact that A, it takes its time. I know we joked about the slow-mo in last week's episode, but this is one that really just embellishes The importance of the moment and it really leads to this sort of double meaning like you said where initially you think oh it's just him you know waking up stunned after the crash like jack did jack also took a little while to get up as well in the pilot but no it's him really coming to this life-changing realization that he is now able to do what he couldn't do up until four years ago uh what i also love about it is just terry o'quinn is a masterclass of acting over the course of the number of years he's going to play John Locke but there's even so much going on in this episode and just i i mean it must have been a huge challenge for him right having to be told by Jack Bender okay this scene is going to be per, you know it's going to be looked at one of two ways so you have to play it really really subtle but he even, plays it yeah. but he plays it in such a way where you can look at it you know from either conception of the scene and you can still see his performance come across he does a really great job of sort of straddling both sides of the river from that perspective of showing someone who isn't a little bit of shock but also is in shock because he can walk again for the first time in several years and so i mean this is just going to be a drop in the bucket from the amount of acclaim i'm going to give to carrie o'quinn over the course of this episode and for years to come so that is the th- that takes place during the immediate
2: aftermath of the crash, and we slam to a couple of nights later. It's nighttime, and Vincent the dog is going nuts, uh, barking at something. There's something shuffling around in the fuselage. Which, by the way, is my it Vincent f- is it, it, It's not Vincent. Vincent's here. Vincent's fine. It's not like a small army of other Vincents, but Vincent is like he's barking at something in the fuselage. Uh, fuselage is one of my favorite words to say. Uh, and I will take every opportunity that I, that I've got to say fuselage. Uh, but there's this audible noise, there's, there's shuffling, there's groaning from within the fuselage. People are starting to wake up from it. Uh, and like Jack and a bunch of people are like moving towards it. And Jack's like, I bet it's Sawyer. And Sawyer's like, I'm right here, you jerk.
3: Well, no, he's, I believe he says right behind you, jackass, which does, does jackass count as a nickname because his name is Jack? I think that we'll have to check the official Sawyer
2: nickname count, which is being tabulated, we will discuss later on. I would vote yes. I think Jack Ass. you know, his name is Jack. You tag an ass at the end of that. It's a little lazy, but it got, it's got it got to count.
3: Yeah, I would think so. And I think, I mean, it definitely gets bonus points due to the fact that he's referring to someone named Jack as a jackass. I think if he was saying it to Ben Linus, then I would even deduct points for the pure laziness of it. But the fact that it's, it's punny... And get some points in my book.
2: I agree. Uh, so it's not Sawyer in there. Sawyer and Jack and a few other people, they're going to like slowly march towards the fuselage to figure out what it is. And they are very lucky that it's not the smoke monster or any other really terrible thing that's on the island. It's just a bunch of pigs. It's some pigs. Uh, some uh, some radiant, humble thingamajigama pigs are just going to burst out of the fuselage and Jack is gonna be really freaked out when he sees like the the like the night vision eyes of the of the pig. He's gonna tell everybody to run. Everybody runs away. Uh, they all get like flattened out by the boars. They as they scream off into the jungle. And you've got Charlie going, "What the bloody hell was that?" And it's got and John Locke with one of his very you know he's already talked a little bit, but one of his first spoken lines of Lost. Is just a very quiet but super enthusiastic boars.
3: I feel like Locke goes full David Attenborough over the course of this. I mean, I think if Lost took place in the 2010s, this is a guy that totally would have like all of, you know, Blue Earth or Blue Planet on Blu ray, right? And just, <laughs> yeah, so into the narration. That's when we get into later, as I mentioned before, the scimitar like tusks that grind up against the tree in order to sharpen them, to take down their food. He just, Again, his amount of knowledge about very specific things is a little weird, but we're about to find out that John Locke is a little weird, so it seems apropos.
2: Well, you know the the saying of like the, the wealth of knowledge this person possesses is a, it's a mile wide but an inch deep. I feel like John Locke's know how is like miles wide and miles deep as well, if not miles strong. I was gonna say so he
3: can he can talk to dead people.
2: Not yet, not yet, not yet, but uh, that's, it's still triggering, still triggering. Uh, let's talk about some dead people, because from the boars, we cut to, uh, to, the, to the Lost title card, and when we come back, it's like the, the leadership crew. It's like the, the popular kids at the table are all yes, talking it's, about- Yes, it's
3: like the McLaughlin group of Lost.
2: It's like, what do we, we want to do about that? Like That's obviously a pretty big deal. The BODYS, they're still in the fuselage. Uh, they're really causing quite a ruckus- uh, in their stench, in their decomposing state, they're obviously attracting the boar. This is not great. Uh, and Jack is going to be the guy who suggests we should burn the bodies. And it's a controversial suggestion for people. It's a controversial suggestion for Saeed, who takes issue with it uh, religiously. We've got that clip later for the eight sound section, so I don't want to litigate it too hard right now. Um, But he basically like wills this idea into, you know, he manifests this idea. He's like, we're going to do this. We're going to burn the bodies and we're going to do it tomorrow night. And Charlie's like, if he's in such a rush, why don't we do that right now or tomorrow morning? And everyone's like, because if it's night and we've got a huge bonfire going, maybe we've got a shot at getting rescued. Maybe it's a signal fire.
3: I mean, who knew Jack took uh, advice from Stannis Baratheon in terms of ways to get out of sticky situations?
2: Yeah, the night is dark and filled with boars. (laughs) I Uh, will will also
3: say, I'll, I'll just put this out here and we'll talk about it more in the eight sounds. But let's just remember that Jack had to kill a guy last episode. I think that's very much going to inform his behaviors over the course of this episode, which are... Not great, admittedly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the next day, Saeed is doing his MacGyver thing. He's uh, he's de- he's designing some like, kind of antenna of sorts. He wants to track down the power source that's fueling the Frenchwoman's woman's signal. Uh, and Kate's like, cool, how can I help? And Saeed's like, it would appear that you are as anxious to get off this island as I am. Uh, and uh, indeed she is.
3: I like how Saeed, your impression sounds like Saeed could play the treasure cat in a community theater production of Alice in Wonderland.
2: Don't relegate him to community theater. I feel like uh, the Naveen Andrews would kill it as the Cheshire Cat.
3: I like it. Listen, Burton, bring it back again. We, you yeah. screwed up the casting last time.
2: No, let's give it to somebody else. You and I can do it. We'll do uh, a right. we'll, we'll uh, Alice in Wonderland podcast as a, as a bonus Lost Down the Hatch podcast late in the run. Once we've established some clout and we can hire uh, the, uh, the actual voice cast from Lost. Uh, that will be our great greatest achievement. Start the petitions now, people. Get to change.org and make it
3: happen. I will say, uh, uh, I forgot how much I love Syed and Kate as a pair.
2: Yes, me too. There's great stuff from them early on.
3: Yeah, it's, it's another thing where if you look in the parallel, the sideways universe of what happens if Kate is a leader instead of Jack, I wonder how much that saeed Kate pairing would be brought to prominence, maybe even a romantic influence. Though, again, that's also maybe a bit different from what Saeed's supposed to represent in the year 2004 as well.
2: I think that Saeed falls very hard for people. Like, I think that he's a, he is a real romantic. So I think that there is a universe where Saeed uh, crushes on Kate something fierce, especially if Jack's not in the mix. I could totally see that happening.
3: Yeah, listen, uh, I have a crush on a woman who can climb a tree as voraciously as she can. Absolutely.
2: Uh, So we see, uh, you know, it's daytime now and Walt is trying to go and hang out with his best buddy, John Locke. Michael's not really happy about it. He's like, I don't really want you hanging out with the creepy bald guy who's like looking very lovingly at his briefcase of things we cannot yet see. (laughs) Uh, and Walt's like, yeah, but he's cooler than you, so I'm probably going to do it anyway. He Uh, just kind of stalks off. So
3: much. And I should also mention, uh, while they're doing this, everyone has been relegated to junior firewood deputy bitch as Jack (laughs) is essentially (laughs) making everyone gather firewood to build this giant pyre for the night.
2: Yeah, so that's all happening, uh, except that there is other physical activity that is occurring, some fisticuffs of sorts between Hurley and Sawyer. They're fighting
3: over the food. Sawyer, they're don't scrapp- you go for the sand. Hurley's too beloved.
2: They're scrapping for scraps, Mike Bloom, as Hurley and Sawyer are are pushing and shoving, and it seems like the, the food is really at a bare minimum. Uh, they're running very dangerously low, and Sawyer busts out a few nicknames for everybody. I think we get Jumbotron here.
3: Uh, we had, we, we get, get Jethro for Sawyer.
2: Um, I think uh, he says Metro. He calls Jack Metro at one point. <laughs> uh and sawyer like uh uh, saeed shows up and saeed again with an action plan it's like there's plenty of things we can find on this island for sustenance uh he says we could go hunting we can find things uh there's there's things that we can forage and sawyer sits down in a a set of seats that have been uh set up like a little love couch uh and he he plops down on one of them and he says, "Well, how are we gonna go how are we gonna go and get food? Boing, and yeah, there's the knife. John Locke tosses the knife at Sawyer's head, uh misses him by a few inches, or he has perfect aim." Hard to say. He's got a ton of knives. You know this scene if you've watched Walkabout recently, even if you haven't. This is the big John Locke intro. Obviously, we're going to play it in the eight sound section. It's going to be much better to hear it than to rehash it right now. But basically, his plan is there's a mother pig out there. She's got some scimitar-sized tusks and a surly disposition. We're gonna We're going to take three people, myself included. We're going to flank it. I'm gonna slit its throat and we're gonna have bacon for breakfast.
3: Yes, and how might I do this? Why, here's my trusty case of knives.
2: Yeah, and he like I think it's Sawyer's like, he's got one knife. We're really
3: gonna trust this guy. And
2: then Locke kicks open his briefcase and uh I don't have the exact count on me, but that's that's a lot of blades. Lots G- of knives.
3: Yeah, a lot of knives. I, I I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's supposed to be like you know how, in finishing school, you have all of these ultimately unnecessary pieces of cutlery. I'm assuming is that sort of the case for a knife that different knives are used for different adventuring purposes concerning they were meant for the walkabout?
2: yeah, I think that he's got you know he's got like his uh his his hunting knife he's got like his his uh his his special like
3: uh vegetable peeler in there, probably <sighs> he's got the one to cut off little hangnails that he'll get. Yeah, he's got a nail file in there. He's got all sorts. He's got of a stuff. slap chop.
2: He's got he's got so much going on. He's got uh, he's got sting in case he needs to fight the orcs. Uh, it'll glow in the dark so <laughs> that you will see them coming. Orcs. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> now I just imagine John Locke bringing back this desiccated body of an orc. Like, yeah. All right, let's eat.
2: And everyone's like, "Yo, no, weird, humanoid, not happening." Like
3: you know, this thing like came from black goo, right, dude? <laughs>
2: uh, Hurley is the guy who asks the question on our mind. He says, "Who is this guy?" Uh, and Dallin Servo wrote in to to note a great character connection here. Of Hurley is going to be saying, "Who is this guy?" And then we cut back to a flashback of John Locke working at the Box Company. That Hurley
3: owns. Uh, what a terrible that? CEO. Doesn't even know the names of his lowest level employees.
2: Doesn't even know who John Locke is. But we're in the flashback, and it's the it's the cold open that you heard at the start of this podcast. He picks up the phone, GL-12, calling for Colonel Locke. Uh, and the way the flashback works uh, structurally is so great where you really do think like, okay, so here's like this very, very important military-minded guy. Uh, who, of course, is going to be somebody that these people should be trusting out there on the island? But then, very quickly, uh, you know, the the lumberg of lost Randy Nations shows up, demanding TPS reports uh, and being just like a total dweebus to Locke. Uh, and uh, it's it's just funny. It's just a, it's a it's a funny way of like sort of contrasting this guy who, up to this point, even in the limited interactions we've had from Locke seems to be the only person who's really been embracing his destiny out here and embracing the circumstances of, uh, of where he has found himself. And it turns out, in reality, he seems like he's just sort of like a low-level rung on a much greater corporate ladder.
3: I mean, this is quite a rug pull in an episode full of one very, very, very big rug pull. But I think it's so well done. I love when they conceive these types of flashbacks. It reminds me of like what they do in Gion. With the double flashback and flash forwards with Sun and Jin, of just taking new ways, even with their second flashback episode only, to twist the tales and make us think we know what's going on when really it's the complete opposite. And this, these like 20 seconds is probably the highest we'll regard John Locke outside of the island, maybe for the rest of his time outside of the island, because I mean, he's so pathetic. In these flashbacks. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And we're going to get into it more and more. As we start to unravel his life. But it's just a really good way. To gut punch you initially. Of like yeah you think he's this really important guy. Who has all this militaristic training. No he's the guy that you would want to avoid. Having small talk with in the break room. Because he just has that weird look about him.
2: Well what's what's great about it too. Is it, it introduces this tension. That's ever present with John Locke. Uh, of like so. Does this guy know what he's doing or not? You know, like, there's always this tension of, like, should we be following this guy? Does he have the right plan? Uh, Like, he doesn't really have any expertise in any of this other than, like, a strong, high level of confidence in himself and in his purpose for being here. And certainly the way that Walkabout's going to end really raises those stakes, right? Like, really raises the stakes of, like, okay, well, A, he's going to survive the monster encounter. But B, he was paralyzed, and he's not anymore, and this island did that for him. So it's certain that something very special is happening with this guy, or at least he's benefiting from some special circumstances on this island. But it's always in the back of your mind that he is um, he's lesser than what he portrays. Uh, and I think that that tension is just so fascinating in this episode, specifically with like, so they're going to go on this boar hunt. Which is going to be very dangerous if they don't know what they're doing, and here's this guy with all these knives at his disposal that could just be like a crazy person who you know who has like just like this fierce need to kill something and maybe get killed in the process. So it gets you on high alert for like what the what the consequences of the hunt might be, yeah um, but it, it also works in terms of that long term arc of John Locke as a man worth following or not.
3: Well, I also love this idea as well that, you know, I think we're going to get into the idea soon of people being special and destined for a purpose on the island. You know, we're obviously going to get that with Walt. Jack is going to be one to be bred to be a candidate. Several people are going to be bred to be candidates. Locke is someone who walks in feeling like he has that purpose when ultimately he doesn't. And it's such an interesting narrative. You know, there's a lot of stuff in, like, superhero culture, especially nowadays, right? Of, okay, you have people who are super-powered, and then there's Batman, who's just, like, a really rich, smart guy who has a lot of great resources and is a pretty good fighter. But and has, is, like,
2: fueled by rage.
3: Exactly. But I think what makes his character so interesting is that he is not someone who has been naturally imbued with powers that makes them literally a super-person, you know, above the standards of humanity. He is a human— He is just able to utilize, you know, humanity's best qualities to make himself able to defend people. And I feel like Locke has a little bit of superhero qualities on his own in a way where he probably thinks, okay, I can got the use of my legs back. That means I can do anything. Let me take full advantage of this opportunity. You know, we talked about Tabula Rasa last time. I think Locke still has... Some things for to write in his own destiny, and he's going to try to do it here on the island, even if he might not know his way around a knife as well as people think he does.
2: All right, so John Locke's gonna he's gonna he's gonna lead this trek through the jungle, and he's gonna go with two partners. Partner number one is Kate Austin, who once again signing on for a field trip. I think that it's it's going to be hard to I don't know I I don't want to spoil it for the twenty three point section. I think that Kate is you know she's currently entering this episode of Down the Hatch as the MVP leader. I don't know if that's necessarily in danger right now, but there's so many different possible places to assign MVP points that I don't know if Kate's going to get it. But once again, here she is. She's always taking charge. She's always ready to go into the heart of darkness. Uh, Kate Austin, underrated character. Uh, So Kate's going to do that because she wants to track down the power source. She's going to bring the antenna thing that Saeed wants her to to go and post up in a tree. She's not the only person who's signing on for the trek. Michael is going to finally roll up his sleeves. Uh, and uh, Tara went off eventually uh, and go off into the jungle because he wants to get to know John Locke. Uh, he wants to know Walt's new friend, and he's going to leave Walt with son as his babysitter, and I don't want to spend too much time on that right now because the clip is so freaking funny, and we're going to have to play it. Um, it's just so fun. It's so great.
3: Oh, boy, yeah. Nothing, nothing says babysitter like the woman you accidentally walked in on topless a couple days ago.
2: Yeah, and who, as far as you know, cannot speak English. <laughs> uh, but let's go with that. Uh, so uh, they're going to go, and they're going to go march off. There's some action still back at the beach that's worth talking about. Claire and Jack are going to going to talk. Claire, uh, you know, everybody knows that they're burning the bodies that night, the B-O-D-Y-S, that they're going to have a memorial service. is something that Claire wants to do. She suggests that Jack should lead it. Jack says, no, nope, not my thing. <laughs> not really what I'm into at all. Uh and so Claire's like, Alright, weirdo, I'll do it, I guess. Like, I don't know why you're being such a such a negative Nelly about it, but okay.
3: Yeah, uh, I, I also I believe this is the first time that Claire's name is mentioned, which is very interesting. Has she not been identified at all at I, this point? I don't believe so. I believe her introducing herself to Jack is the first time we hear her name in All of Lost.
2: She has to have uh in that scene with her and Charlie and in, in uh in Taboo La Rasa. They had to have. I, They I had don't to have think, shared. I their don't names, think no? so. All right, we'll roll the tape. We'll have to watch that again. We'll re- we'll re-recap Tabula Rasa uh, and and just uh, double check to see if that's the case. Either way, Claire is uh, she's like, all right, I'll do it. If you're gonna be if you're gonna be a real party of five pooper about the whole thing, then I'll lead the service. Uh, meanwhile, Shannon, very very hungry, she thinks that she's gonna be able to go and catch a fish. Boone is making fun of her mercilessly about this. He has a great line: "The ocean's not gonna take your gold card." Uh but alas, Mike Bloom, the ocean eventually takes all of our gold cards.
3: Oh boy, this really puts the C and C plot, Josh.
2: Yes, yes, it really does. Because this is thing to remember about Walkabout, is that there is this subplot where Shannon is gonna go and find Charlie, who's just getting high in the jungle, and she finds Charlie, says, Hey, what are you doing right now? You wanna hang out? You wanna talk? And Charlie's like, Yup, big fan <laughs> of you, as established, huge fan of the light sticks, and he's gonna go for a walk with Shannon. And he's like going to be like, all right, I knew you were going to ask. I knew you recognized me. It's true. I am the bass guitar player. And she's like, yeah, do you know how to fish? Uh, and so she's recruiting Charlie into finding her a fish. And I would be very, uh, I would be like all the way thumbs down on this subplot if it didn't uh, yield a couple of uh, positive things that we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a little while. Um Boone is going to go to Jack. He's going to say, hey, remember that uh, woman who I almost stabbed in the throat with a pen because you told me to? Uh, Rose? And Jack's like, oh, yeah, her. I'm very glad that you didn't do that. What's up with her? And he says, yeah. So she's on her own, and she's like not doing anything or talking to anybody or eating anything or drinking anything. And like maybe since you saved her life, you should maybe think about continuing to keep her alive. Uh, So Jack is going to spend the vast majority of the episode hanging out with Rose off in the distance uh, while they're just, uh, while, while Rose is staring off at the sea and thumbing with her wedding ring where Bernard's wedding ring that she has around her, her neck in a necklace.
3: Yeah. It's it's a very interesting interaction. You know, the Jack and Rose stuff is going to go away after a little while, but let's remember to actually bring this up in a later scene that, you know, Jack's still technically holding her to her promise of staying with her until her husband comes back. And, it's an it's a fun relationship, and we get to meet Rose a little bit. We didn't see her too much out of outside of you know Jack, you know, you know, uh, basically resuscitating her, much to Boone's chagrin. But right. it's, it's some interesting scenes and a little bit of characterization for Rose, who's a character who we don't get we get some of in the first couple seasons, but after that, kind of much like the island, falls off the map.
2: All right, so let's go to the hunt. Uh, Locke and, and Michael and Kate they're walking and Michael Michael's kind of opening up to Kate about his son and his circumstances and everything that's going on there and he's like so what about you? What do you do? And Kate's like eh, I don't want to talk about that because uh, that would be awkward for, for many reasons
3: She um, says she works on a farm
2: Yeah, I, I canned peaches for a one-armed man who oh. loved canned peaches I work at a box factory, let's all trade boarding job stories I used to box up canned peaches. Uh, Locke comes across a tree trunk, and it's all tusked up, just like he promised. Uh, there's scimitar-like tree trunk tusk marks uh, all over the place, and they, uh, they, they invite the presence of a boar, a boar's, uh, which comes and, and runs Michael over and gorges Michael's leg. And Locke gets flattened out as well. And Kate really uh, makes it out pretty well. She's spry, much like Hurley.
3: I do like, A, Locke probably looking at Michael's leg and being like, glad that was not me. But there is a moment of, you know, again, mirroring the the first scene. And, you know, that certain corner of the internet might have gotten their senses fired back up again. But Locke's sort of lying flat on his back. And I do wonder if part of it in her monologue is like, oh, my God, is it gone? It's done. Is it's it, gone. Yeah, yeah And it turns percent And it turns out that, nope. He's still got it, and so maybe that sort of makes him believe more into the Destiny stuff and all this island holistic methodology that he's going to get into very soon.
2: Right. So while he's flattened out, we get another flashback. We see him playing board games with GL12, my boy GL12, uh, who we will not see again as far as I recall Uh, on Lost. I
3: believe uh, apparently his name is Warren Goldberg, according to some material. (laughs) Okay, Warren Goldberg. Shout out to Warren Goldberg, our man. And he went on uh, to, of course, create ABC's synergistic show, The Goldbergs. <laughs> I don't think that that's true. It's lost canon now.
2: I would like for it to be. Uh, no, but I do believe that Forrest Whitaker was originally lined up to play GL12.
3: Oh, FW12 then.
2: Yeah, FW12 was almost a thing. Uh, apparently, he lacks patience, which is the hallmark of a good leader. Uh, which is interesting because there are times where John Locke is, like, supernaturally patient, and then there are times where he's very much not. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I think, uh, is it the hallmark of a good leader, or is there another hallmark of a good leader that John Locke isn't looking at? It's certainly a, a, a strong quality to find in a good leader, but is that like the is that the hub of your leadership ability? Is that at the center of the Venn diagram? I don't know.
3: Yeah, but it suffice it to say, well, it might be patience as part of being a good leader. He has no patience for his boss, especially when his boss comes siling up into his lunchtime conversations and just continuously needles him to no end.
2: Yeah, Randy, frickin Randy showing up and just like making fun of Locke and without saying it, being like, you're going to go on a walkabout, dude, you can't walk. That's stupid. <laughs> this is a terrible. terrible boss. It's like, it's like Randy you are such an asshole. Uh you are so lucky that John Locke did not just like take one of his thousand knives and bury it deep within you because Yeah, I'm, I'm
3: sure one of them was the Randy knife that's in that case of knives. He was like, much like
2: Desmond is waiting to read that last Charles Dickens book before he dies, John Locke was waiting to use this one special knife on Randy Nations. Uh, I wonder if that's a deleted scene from the life and death of Jeremy Bentham when he finally gets off <laughs> the island. Can you just
3: imagine he, like, goes up to Randy when he's working like, a circuit store and just shanks him to no end and then just I walks away. I wouldn't be surprised. I
2: wouldn't be surprised. Randy Nations, the worst. But this is where we get, uh, you know, Locke's going to talk about Norman Croucher, Norman Croucher. Uh, the double amputee who climbed Mount Everest because it was his destiny. And it's Locke who then says, just don't tell me what I can't do. And when we slam back to reality, uh, Locke wakes up and Kate keeps saying like, John, are you okay? Are you all right? And he says, I'm fine. I just got the wind knocked out of me. Helen, I'm okay. She's like, Helen?
3: Ugh. Well, considering what we're going to find out about one particular Helen later on, it makes me wonder what he thinks to, You know, hell, that Helen might look like in comparison to Kate
2: right i mean like maybe kate's like how did you know that one of my aliases was helen
3: well, yeah or uh, maybe kate kt Segal, he made those sort of connections in his life. Ooh,
2: head. yeah that's a good idea that's good but she's gonna, he's going to get up. He's like, all right, you guys go back to camp. Michael's legs hurt. I'm going to go find the boar. And Kate's like, yo, don't do that. You can't do that. Locke says, don't tell me what I can't do. <laughs> You're worse than Randy. <laughs> <laughs> no one is worse than Randy. Let's not get ourselves. Uh, all right, and then we go back to a flashback, and this is where we we learn about Helen for the first time, but it is indeed Helen in quotes. This is not the Helen we will know and love later on in Lost. This is not Katie Seagal. This is a woman who it would appear that John Locke has been paying to keep him company on the telephone most nights and even here Locke is like kind of like glorifying the, the encounter he had with Randy I was like I told off Randy it was enormously satisfying it was the best thing I ever did by the way I'm going on that walkabout that only thing I've been talking about for the past two weeks and I bought two tickets and like immediately Helen's like oh John I uh, uh, Yeah, about that.
3: Oh, this is so... This is even sadder than the Randy thing to me. Like, we all get, you know, spat on by jerks in our respective lives. But, like, it seems like he has invested feelings in her. I really do wonder, especially knowing what we do from the other Helen history, if he told her, like, can I call you Helen? I really do wonder if that's not her real name. And he, like, put that personality upon her to make him feel yeah. better. Yeah.
2: It's like it's like it's that, or he specifically looked up a Helen, right, like I mean, like whatever it is, like it's pretty sad, yeah, um, and you know we know how that all ended where uh she leaves him because he can't let go of the fact that he needs to connect with his father, and he like does that behind her back, and she eventually is just gonna run away from him um it's it's that's it's really, really, really rough, and we'll we'll play that scene and the sounds, uh, just like to. To, I, I think, like, we, we picked, like, four really great Terry O'Quinn performance scenes yeah. for the sounds. Uh, like, just, just like, kind of, like, express the full range of what that man is capable of. So, we'll we'll get there. Um, back in reality, whoop, there goes gravity, as Kate Austin is going to climb a tree. And th-
3: scrapes her knee.
2: Yes, yeah, to, to boost the transceiver signal. She's got the antenna. Uh, and Michael's like, you sure you're going to be all right? She's like, I've climbed a lot worse. I'm like... So what have you climbed? Ooh. Like what, what else what else have you climbed? Uh, I I could imagine
3: li- her totally living like an Ethan Hunt, not Ethan Rom lifestyle where she's like clinging onto the side of helicopters as they take off. Yeah, Ethan Hunt,
2: cousin of Ethan Rom. Uh <laughs> where uh, yeah, I mean Kate like probably like in her free time doing a lot of work at the climbing gym, just in case. You never know. I could imagine uh, her
3: like climbing mountains and camping out of them. Like she totally would be into that free solo documentary that just won an Oscar.
2: Yeah, I think so, too. I think so as well. Uh, so Kate's going to climb the tree. She's ready to do the thing. But while she's up there, we get the, oh, uh, you know, whatever the monster noise is. Uh, and she's like, OK, monsters here. This isn't great. And just at like hearing the the noise of the monster, she drops the transceiver. And like immediately she's like, if I get out of here alive, Saeed's going to kill me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Saeed's going to be so mad. Uh, and you don't want to disappoint Saeed. He's your brainy buddy. He
2: is. He is. So she
3: drops the thing, the monster goes
2: forward, and she says Locke is what she says as the monster is stalking off into the jungle, and we're going to see Locke, who's going to come across the boar, uh, but instead, the monster is going to come across Locke first, and we're going to get it from the monster's point of view, and it's going to look down on John Locke, and John Locke is looking up in utter awe at the thing that he sees, but we do not yet see And we will not ever see how this went down. We will hear details about it from Locke, uh, but we will never actually see his point of view on this. And I do think that it's a... I I think that that's a missed opportunity from Lost. One One of the few where I would say, like, I really do wish, like, with all of the things that you ended up showing us, you never revisited this scene. Like, there must have been something here that could have been really, really cool to see.
3: Well, I also wonder, considering his propensity for fish stories, unlike the sea plot here, from you know when he was telling Helen about how much he shanked Randy in the break room, uh, you'd think that his, I saw into the eye of the island and it was beautiful, might be a little exaggerated. Uh, personally, I think they kissed a little bit.
2: <laughs> I think they may have smooched. They did a little smoochy
3: in the jungle. I, and he's, a, he's ashamed of it.
2: I think he doesn't want to talk about it uh yeah presented her the monster presented as helen he was like smoochy smoochies Uh, (laughs) both
3: helens at once
2: yeah oh my god katie seagal and
3: a phone receiver
2: uh, yeah and a (laughs) phone i mean that might explain some of the noises (laughs) with with the monster right yeah phone helen was the monster the whole time That's just like, alienating Locke like, further and further. Just like further. Jacob
3: had all the connections. Phone Monster yeah. was the sex, the sex hotline person that Locke had yes. a relationship with. Also, I will say going back to this, uh, Locke 100% would get catfished nowadays, right?
2: 100%. 108% he would get catfished for sure. Uh, all right. So Kane and Michael, they're going to come back to the beach. And Walt's like, hey, where's Sean Locke? And Michael's like, hey, he's uh, uh, probably dead. Uh, it doesn't say. So now uh, I'm your only
3: th- friend. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So Kate's going to go to Saeed. She brings him the busted antenna. He's not happy about it. He (laughs) throws it right on the ground, which I thought was a little reckless. Uh, Not enough to detract an LVP point for the the great Saeed, but maybe enough to stop him from getting an MVP point this week. uh, Because like, come on, you could probably still use some of that stuff. No need yeah. to like get it. it. At least it wasn't Sandy when she returned it. Now you're going to have to get all those little <laughs> bits out of there.
3: Yeah, I would say when he decided to pull a lonely island and threw it on the ground, I could imagine that there is just some mounting frustration. I think as much as he likes to commiserate in Kate, he is sort of putting a lot of pressure on himself as like, the lone person who can repair all of this technology. So I can imagine maybe he's having a little bit of self-doubt on his end of, oh my god, this is the one thing that could have helped us, and now it's broken, what the hell am I going to do? It's one of those things where you freak out at first, but then you sort of take a deep breath and count to ten, and you realize it's a much, you know, more uh, realistic scenario can be carried out, as we're going to see over the course of several episodes, when we do still continue on the triangulation uh, plot. Yeah, as
2: Jack would tell him, it's no use crying over spilled angel hair pasta. (laughs) Oh god! but we, we're we're also going to get Charlie, who uh, has, has teamed up with Hurley to catch a fish. He's going to return to Shannon. He's got the fish. And Shannon's like instantly super rude to him and dismissive about it. And Boone is like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry she did this to you. Uh, she thinks in her twisted little brain that this is her actually surviving out here. And she's going to walk off. And Charlie's going to look real sad. Uh, and this is it. This is the, if there was ever any real shot at a Charlie and Shannon thing, it's done now. Yeah. That's over.
3: Zero chance that Charlie and Shannon end up in that church at the end of the series now. I mean, in the same building, but like definitely not not in the the
2: afterlife. Yeah, he had never, he never let that go. Um, In the Jack and Rose conversation, they finally start talking uh, and they're bonding a bit. And the moment that Jack brings up saying goodbye to everybody at this memorial service. And maybe you want to be there. Maybe you want to say goodbye to your husband. This is where she says, my husband is not dead. Uh, and he's going to talk about, uh, she's going to talk about rather like, they're probably thinking that we're dead as well. Uh, we'll we'll revisit that momentarily. Uh, but uh, very cool to have that seated this early on. Uh, as Rose is walking away, Jack looks off in the distance. He sees his father. Uh, course we know that it's not actually christian shepherd that's uh that's the monster man and
3: actually it's literally not christian shepherd i believe that the actor who plays him john terry they did not use him in these first couple of standalone shots you know what with walkabout they had enough terry
2: going on with terry o'quinn that's, that they had <laughs> that's
3: the it's the terry rule only one terry's allowed on set at once
2: and they eventually violate that rule but i think early on they were like i don't know how much terry this show can <laughs> handle <laughs>
3: We don't have enough money for
2: two Terrys yet. Uh, so it's a different actor no, than Christian. You wouldn't
3: at me, we'll give you another Terry.
2: Yeah, it's a different actor than John Terry as Christian Shepard here. And eventually Jack's going to see him again after he's like united with Kate. And he's going to go run off after the apparition. And Kate's like, what are you doing? And Jack runs deep into the jungle. And what he finds instead is he doesn't find uh, Christian Shepherd. He finds John Locke, who is dragging a boar uh he himself is covered in all sorts of blood and this is great as well because jack just went chasing after the monster and the person who shows up is the monster's eventual final form mm. uh so that's pretty cool
3: yeah i do love i i don't know if this is you know incidental i think it's more coincidental but i i agree i, I, agree. I, I do love the segue and also Locke coming back with like a fresh kill as well, considering that in his form as the Man in Black is by far the most ruthless version of John Locke that we will ever see.
2: Absolutely, a hundred percent. So that night, the memorial, uh, Claire is like flanked by Hurley and Boone, who are like her her uh, her co-speech givers. She's eulogizing people. Judith Martha Wexler from Denton, Texas. She was trying to catch a connecting flight. Uh, she was an organ donor, or at least she would have been uh we hear about steve and Kristen. i don't think that's steve of scott and steve not drowning steve they were gonna get married uh there's somebody there's like other details about some people that like uh somebody like yeah the little princess and Willy wonka from a blockbuster uh and you know that's gonna date you just a little (laughs) bit here lost uh and jack's off on his own he's skipping the service We'll come to know why, of course, that I think you're right. I think it's like not only like there's still probably like the residual trauma from the fact that he killed the marshal, had to kill the marshal, had to euthanize him, but also he's still thinking about uh, his father and he just saw like his father's dead ghost in the jungle. So uh, lots going on in, in Jack's mind.
3: Yeah, I we'll, we'll get into it. I think what I really appreciate about Law so far is that as much as season one specifically, and this is part of the series Bible as well, focusing around these standalone episodes, a lot of these really flow into each other. Like, the stuff brought up in Tabula Rasa flows into Walkabout, but the stuff from Walkabout around Jack and his reticence to be a leader really flows into White Rabbit, which is going to be the main focus of it. So it's a lot more fluid than I remember it being, which is a lot of fun. Well, that's one of the great things that I
2: think is a residual of... Like, we laughed at it, but I do think that this is part of that promise of, like, it's not like you have to... uh like you don't have to see every single episode in order to just jump in. Like we'll we'll start teasing out storylines and then we'll bring you in, right? Like we'll we'll show you uh you know, like we'll, you know, you'll have this 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 you know, the White Rabbit storyline is starting here at the end of Walkabout, and then it'll it'll carry through into the next episode and there'll be all sorts of really great moments like that all through the first season of Lost. Uh so I do appreciate that about uh the storytelling here. Um the service is ongoing. Michael is going to ask with uh, he's going to hang out with Locke and he's going to say so I I forget exactly what he says so Locke's like good job man you know <laughs> the boar killing it that was cool. Uh by the way like,
3: my <laughs> leg is still injured.
2: Yeah. Michael's like and by the way like I'm kind of maybe potentially at some point down the line interested in killing things. So let's like keep the lines of communication open about that. Uh we're going to he's going to ask him like did you get any kind of look at the monster? Uh, He says, I did not. Uh, We know that that is not the truth. Uh, And we are going to go from that to a flashback to the iconic ending. Uh, The moment. We're going to go back with Locke to uh, the office for the walkabout. He is going to be in an argument with a guy named Rick Romer, who is freaking Troy Zan,
3: by the way. (laughs) That's
2: Troy Zan. John Locke, you're
3: you're blocked from this walkabout. (laughs)
2: You're black from the you're block about lock John block. Uh, I mean like that's straight up Troy Zan. I know his name is Rick Romer and he's named as such based on the, the, the production designer for lost and that's a great Easter egg. But this is literally, this is Troy Robertson. This is Troy oh. Zan. Of Survivor One World and Survivor Game Changers Can't, can't wait to
3: take pictures on our walkabout. <laughs> clack, 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 <laughs> clack, 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 clack,
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when he recognizes that he has some sort of off-island connection with somebody, it's just like the moment where it clack, clack,
3: clack uh, And then Jock, uh, now, Locke is now, you know, he's made his way off the plane crash and said, this is my island. This is his this moment. Is-
2: yeah, so Locke is going to be channeling his inner Troyzan shortly, but he has this moment where not to ruin this beautiful moment by <laughs> yeah, saying no, this guy it's is freaking Troyzan. Troyzan's in it now. That's his scene partner, <laughs> and, not to, and not to disrespect Troyzan, we've hashed out our beef. I'm just saying, this is freaking Troyzan. <laughs> when you go back and you watch the scene, Rick Romer, he is not. That's freaking Troyzan, and Troyzan is saying, "Locke, you can't come. You can't come on the walkabout, Locke. You lied by omission." And Locke is going nuclear, uh, and Troy Zan's like I gotta go, like everybody's waiting for me, and so he gets up and he goes to the bus, and this is when finally the camera, uh, you know, the, the view of Locke is wide enough now that we can see John Locke as as he normally is in these days, uh, in his wheelchair. He wheels away from the desk. He is reaming, uh, this guy. Dude! Uh, screw, screw you, dude! <laughs> uh, as John Locke I'm is going. I
3: am fire and you are plus water.
2: Yes, yes. He's going ape shit on this man. Bore shit on this guy. Uh, and it's so good. The music is swelling. It's the signature Locke music that Giacchino always brings in these moments of extraordinary tragedy and and also epicness for John Locke. Just this feeling of intense transformation. It's the best. John Locke is the best. The music is soaring. The bus is driving off without him. We fl- we flash to the oceanic crash, and now we've got this new appreciation for why Locke himself is so appreciative of the island. It healed him. It gave him the ability to walk again, and we see him rush off to help Jack uh, pull the wreckage off of that man, and the episode ends back at the memorial service as John Locke is looking at the wheelchair near the flames, and we, as an audience, realize for the first time what Locke has already realized, that this is indeed a very special place, and that is Walkabout.
3: Oh, my God. We'll we'll get more into that final scene later on. I will also say, Terry O'Quinn is the master of the smirk, and the smirk that he gives the wheelchair at the end to be like, not today, old friend, is just, I mean, this is just such a well- encapsulated episode, where you don't need to know anything about John Locke. Hell, none of us did before this episode, but knowing everything he went through, even in the short amount of time that we've seen him, he's essentially a different person now. He thinks. I think there are certain facets of his personality that are going to come out as Lost progresses, but as much as we talked about Tabula Rasa last episode, he is the one who probably has the newest lease on life. And he is, as much as people might be miserable for... Lack of food, being in a desolate environment with dead Ys all around and wild animals. Locke is the happiest he probably has ever been in his life. And it it truly is remarkable
2: and it's palpable like it's just it's so it's so obvious I, I think as we're saying this we're transitioning into the second story point which is just like talking about our feelings on john Locke and just like john Locke as a character i think especially as we're going through these uh inaugural centric episodes for many of these characters we will be doing this for story point two for the foreseeable future of just like drilling in deeper into who these characters are uh and for me as i've said Every time I encounter Lost, my feelings on it change. Uh it's a it is an amorphous thing, a shape-shifting thing for me, much like the smoke monster. And my favorite episodes change, my favorite characters change. Um, but I do think one constant for me about Lost is just how much I love John Locke. John Locke is like not just my favorite character of Lost. Uh he is he is, like my favorite character in anything. Mm. And that that's taking into account the full arc of this man uh this man who really does represent what it means to believe and to and and to follow your belief and to 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 hope and pray that you are here for a reason and that you do matter and all of the bad shit that's happened to you it happened for a reason and it's brought you to now and now that you're here it's time to work Uh, And what you're working for, you don't just know quite yet, but you feel it. You know you're working towards something and you see something. And sometimes you're not going to see those results. Sometimes that work is the impact that you're going to have on somebody else. uh, And you may not live long enough to see that impact. Or your life move on in some way that you will not be around to see that impact. Or the nature of that relationship is such that you will never see the person who feels that impact. And Locke is going to die at a low right like yeah. when he does eventually die he, he you know the smoke monster will tell ben that his final thoughts were i don't understand which is so so sad that that is the way he leaves this place mortally um and i i think that one of the beautiful things that lost eventually does is it does it with with the lock story in specific is it really expresses how much like your light your your story doesn't just end when you're gone. It doesn't just end when you're dead. What matters as much as the life that you lived is how you impacted people who are still here, how people carry your memory, how what you did you know shapes and informs their actions moving forward, and it's why the the jack arc is so powerful for mm. me as well. Uh that you know this person who is so resistant to the way that John Locke goes about his business uh is eventually going to find himself not only so touched by the way that Locke went about his business but really very firmly carrying that torch forward and I think to have that um you know to have a character like Locke, who is somebody who is such a sad sack in so many ways, but if just if if society just played with him differently. Uh if he had just if he had just had a freaking chance. I mean there is this circular cyclical quality about John Locke that he really quite literally is destined to be here due to time travel shenanigans, mm-hmm. right? Like he's going to end up in the 1950s and he's going to tell Richard Alpert, "Come find me as a baby." Like he is the he himself is the reason. He is the driver of his destiny. He's the reason why he's here and even though he's not going to see it through, His actions are going to save this place and save the world. I just think it's such a freaking powerful story. And it is backed by one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen from an actor in Terry Oakley.
3: You never forget your first Funko Pop, Josh. And I'm proud to say that John Locke was my first Funko Pop.
2: That's awesome. That's I
3: I totally co-sign everything you say. On top of that, the thing that I think I like the most about John Locke as a character is that he fails. Multiple times, and I think that goes unappreciated in a culture that's, in pop culture and, you know, storytelling that's built around a lot of stereotypes. You know, you have your heroic characters who take the leadership position, go on the hero's journey, end up succeeding with their goals in the end. But as Locke will say in the season two finale, there are many times when he was wrong. He'll run down the clock and nearly blow up the island with the hatch. You know, he'll set himself apart from all the freighter people. And yes, Kimi was up to no good, but there were some people that were legitimately trying to save them and, and get to get them off the island. Like you mentioned, the, the you know, his, his final days as Jeremy Bentham, he believes he failed in that mission of trying to get everybody on Ajira at the end of the day. What I love about it is this is a guy who... I wouldn't call this almost realistic just because of the mystical qualities of loss, but it's more realistic than I think someone who tries admirably and succeeds at everything they do. This is a guy who more often than not fails at the things that he believes in. There's a quote that you mentioned before earlier on this episode when Jack references Heart of Darkness. And I think that's really appropriate for the Locke episode because I think it really foreshadows what happens to Locke. In a way, Heart of Darkness is a book by a novella, I believe, by Joseph Conrad about uh, someone who travels into the heart of the African Congo, which is when, you know, there was a lot of uh, hunting and pillaging and conquering of the natives going on back in the 1800s, I believe. The action focuses around a character by the name of Colonel Kurtz, who had been built up to this main character as, oh, Kurtz is this Renaissance man. He's considered a demigod the people around here. But as he got closer and closer to the heart and he saw more and more of the dangers that come, he finds that Kurtz has almost gone mad. He was a man who tried to bring civilization to the wild, and he suffered because of it. And I see a little bit of John Locke in that as someone who considered himself high and mighty almost. He felt, I was here for a purpose. Uh, Like you said, Richard Alpert's gonna come to me and that's another thing he fails at. He fails to pick the correct thing when he's a kid and Richard Alpert leaves him after that and that like perennially screws him up mentally. But he's someone who says, you know, I am someone who's going to, you know, lead these people and change their lives for the better only to irrevocably screw things up time after time. And the last things that that Kurt says before dying in heart of darkness is the horror, the horror, which feels a little bit like a lost version is I was wrong. And I think it's a yeah. really cool way to sort of compare, you know, their respective paths as to somebody who is going to get deeper and deeper into the jungle, both proverbially and literally more and more deeply entwined to the island. And as we're going to see, even bearing fruit at the end of season one is going to get at least one person killed. Which is gonna leave not just boar blood on his hands,
2: yeah, uh boon blood, um yeah, and I mean to to take the Kurtz thing further, heart of darkness, obviously inspiring apocalypse now and the Colonel Kurtz character, there, which also ends the horror, the horror, and just sort of like that character, uh you know being somebody who who went rogue and went off on his own destiny and like conquered a swath of jungle and built his own society. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, being this, this sort of like dangerous legend, this, you know, this, this kind of like dark figure of myth. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's no coincidence. I'm sure that in, uh, in his, you know, in in the writing of the character and in the, uh, the flashback storylines referring to Locke as the Colonel, you know, the Colonel Kurt stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, you do imagine like what, what were the darker scenarios, for John Locke. Not that it ends especially brightly, right? Like, I mean, it does end pretty grimly for him, at least in his mortal form. And I think uh, one of the things that helped me make peace with the ending of Lost, especially on the recent rewatch, is coming to appreciate that maybe there is more after this, uh, that the pain and the suffering that you go through here. Um, maybe maybe for the people who were well intentioned, and maybe for the people who were able to to rise above their their mortal failings, uh, they they will have some some shot eventually to to learn from that, to rise above that. That final uh, you know, it's not the final scene of Lost, but it's one of them uh, where where Locke and his wheelchair is coming up to the church, and Ben is sitting outside, and John stands up. You know, he stands up from the wheelchair. Say what you will about the sideways; is such a, a an intensely powerful and emotional scene. Yeah. Um. So this just—he's such a rewarding character. I can't believe that we're about to spend like the next couple of years, like talking about him every week. Yeah. Is so. It's so so exciting to me. Uh, as we're doing, uh, as we're talking about these characters here, uh, certainly in the early going, we're referring back to the series bible that was written for Lost. Uh, post-pilot, and there are character descriptions that were written up about these characters, some more accurately than others, considering where they actually wind up. This is the description of John Locke from the series Bible. Uh, It says, intelligent, charismatic, driven, and considerably more lucid than the pilot gives him credit for. All these characteristics only begin to describe the enigma that is Locke. Once a faceless, unhappy office worker... Locke's only solace came from amassing a knowledge of survival techniques, playing board games, and fighting paintball battles. All traits which made him quirky in civilization but now allow him to shine on the island. For the first time in his life, people look to Locke as a leader and he likes it. The plane crash is the best thing that ever happened to Locke. In many ways, he views it as a sign. He has found his purpose and that's not all. The
3: others don't know what it is yet, but Locke has a plan. Could you imagine John Locke being a badass rolling his way into paintball battles?
2: I would love it. That would be great. Uh, it's a that's on the cutting room floor for sure. Uh, from oh yeah, I can imagine what Locke like
3: back. at that point his hair is like down to his butt. I was gonna say we're <laughs> go, we're gonna get into some very depressing lock flashbacks over the course of this series not only in content but the various hair pieces that they put on poor terry o'quinn to make him look younger uh, uh the 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 missing flashback of john
2: Locke crushing it in paintball while rocking out to you all everybody uh yes. i'm so sad that doesn't exist with his like fingerless
3: uh, gloves on
2: yeah, yes. Yes. Just murking people would be spectacular. Uh the this bit from the Bible the others don't know what it is yet but Locke has a plan. Uh that to me suggests that like I do think that they always wanted to take Locke in a darker direction. They just didn't quite know what it was yet. But as we'll talk about through a bunch of these other places here uh in all these different conversation starters that we've got throughout the podcast, I think that there are, there are very clear indicators uh that from the get-go they wanted to take Locke in some nefarious directions and didn't quite know what that would be yet. This suggests that to me. So of the
3: end of episode three.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. And so, so I think that, like, you know, they always wanted you to be guessing with him. Uh, and I think it's not... I, I, I would imagine that the writers themselves developed, like, some measure of real deep empathy for the story of Locke as they were going. And they had, they had they must have realized, like... This guy may be like a very flawed person who's going to get a lot wrong, but a fundamentally bad guy, that's not John Locke. Yeah. Uh, he's at his core. This is, this is a, a really sad man who just wants to matter. Um, all right. Story point number three. This is where we talk about character connections, thematic points, long view takeaways, all of that stuff. Anything from this episode that stood up and saluted you, Mike Bloom. Uh, Anything that comes to mind for you?
3: Let's start with, so we, we started with Not Vincent making a ruckus in the fuselage, and the sleeping arrangements are very interesting, specifically like, the, who everyone's sleeping with, obviously is some various pairs, Jin and Sun, Michael and Walt together, but I feel like the proximity or lack thereof of some characters is very interesting, like Jack is very far away. I think that represents how he's not really embracing the leadership role yet. I think he's sort of keeping everyone at an arm's distance with the exception of Kate. Uh, Charlie is still sort of off on his own, which I think refers to the fact that he's a bit squirrely and is doing stuff privately without anybody knowing it's, 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 I feel like it's just very sim- symbolic in, you know, in, in Survivor, they say like who you choose to sleep next to in the shelters is very uh, representative of who you're close with. Maybe that's sort right. of the case here on this metaphoric beach.
2: Well w- one of the things that I love to that to that end is uh Said is sleeping alone but he's very close by to Hurley and Claire who it seems like they've they've hit it off uh you know Hurley gave Claire like the extra tray of food and everything like that he was with her at the start of the plane crash. So I think the two of them are, are you know, as tight as anybody is in terms of the strangers so far. But I love that idea that like Saeed and Hurley, they've connected already, right? And like Saeed saw Hurley being bullied before. I like the idea that maybe Saeed wants to keep tabs on Hurley just in case someone's like going to be mean to him. And of course, also wanting to keep a watch fly on Claire just in case something happens and the doctor is far away and somebody needs to be on standby in case something's going on with Claire. Just once again, early going Saeed. Remarkable character. A lot of this is fanfic, but, like, dude, like, Saeed is just a superhero. Yeah,
3: he really is. I think if John Locke is the normal person who is uh, trying to rise above, I think that Saeed just is the superhero who is just naturally endowed with all these fantastic qualities that will, you know, ebb away a bit as the people around him begin to gain strength.
2: Uh, Some notes on the fashion Of the survivors of Oceanic 815, you noted the the short-sleeve-long-sleeve combo from James Sawyer Ford a few episodes back. Uh, There are moments throughout this episode where Jack has, like, a Survivor buff on.
3: Yeah, and I didn't know if if that was, like, an elastic band just to, like, catch sweat, but it looked like he stumbled in from our most recent podcast, Josh, Survivor Lost, the brain steel simulation with Rob Sesternino.
2: Yeah, if you have not listened to that yet, as we had said uh, a couple of times over the course of these Down the Hatch podcasts, we're not even putting Survivor Lost on the wheel because we, like Locke, had a plan. uh, And the Survivor Lost simulation already exists over on Rob has a website. Rob has a podcast. Uh, Make sure to check that out if you're a Survivor fan, if you have not done so already. It's ridiculous it's it's a very very strange podcast that we created there uh and we hope you'll like it, but yeah, here's jack he's got like uh like a like a very dirty cream colored survivor buff, not really a survivor buff that we see uh you know, in almost 40 seasons of the show, I don't think we've seen yeah. a, a white buff yet. There was
3: a South African version that had white tribes and black tribes, very lost S, so maybe Jack was, I don't know, maybe it, it washed in from one of the other islands that they were playing on, and Jack decided to to pick it up. I feel like Jack would be someone who watched, like, the first couple seasons, but then didn't really tune in after that.
2: Uh, Michael's wearing a fanny pack.
3: Is, it, is like he wearing that. it, like, around his shoulder?
2: Yeah, it's like a strange fanny pack look for Michael. Uh, And Rose is wearing a blanket like a shawl. And I think that that's a great look. Not enough. uh, Got to shout out uh, L. Scott Caldwell, who's just remarkable as as Rose, Rose Nadler.
3: Yeah, especially her optimism. I mean, Saeed talks last episode about like, we can't tell them the truth because all they have is hope. And Rose is just the pinnacle of hope over the course of essentially this entire season, even though we do have people building rafts and building signal fires, she's the one who just sits on the beats and says, listen, I don't know much, but I know my husband is, you know, is there. And she ends up being right all along. A couple of other fashion items that are a bit vintage. So I think this is where we start getting, like, the traditional Kate outfit. And Kate, I don't know if she's wearing, like, either very loose jeans they almost look like bell bottoms to me oh josh, nice i didn't notice that i they're, gotta look and that they're very big on the bottom but there's one thing that i really want to point out there is one particular extra and i'm gonna try to send you uh, a picture in our little chat here josh there's one particular extra in uh this one scene where they're getting fired with it i like to call 70s extra okay because <laughs> they are wearing like a gl 70 they're wearing like a striped polo shirt and blue jeans that looks like it's coming out of like the partridge oh, yes. family so yeah she's got the bear midriff yeah so i'm wondering i'm hold like, on larry well so i'm wondering like wait a minute are they possibly hinting at time travel already Did this person already travel back from the wow. 70s from the dharma initiative and is now like okay i guess i'll start stacking wood i don't know what's going on but here we go
2: all right, well, I wonder if we'll meet this person in our Lost RPG bonus podcast that is coming your way in the Old not Stripey distant future. Old Stripey. Going to make a... Gonna, Sarah Stripes, as I Sarah like to Stripes. Call her. Sarah Stripes. Sarah uh, Stripes. All right, uh, one thing that I love about John Locke is that, once again, we're really establishing this man loves board games quite a lot. Uh, uh, ben Martel notes that it's probably a game called Axis and Allies. The board appears to be a risk board, but the pieces are not. And the angle of the shooting, the scene obscures the board. I don't know Axis and Allies very well. Also, Mike, I would say I, I've never played Risk before. Oh, really? Uh, it's, I know it's, it's one. I, I'm, I've gotten really into board games recently, and I, I've I've not done Risk. I'm I'm a Pandemic Legacy man well, myself. We just finished season one. Well,
3: Risk is going to be one of those things where you're like, okay, you better commit to like coming back here tomorrow or in a few days. It's never a game that you can finish in one day, especially when you have the six people. It certainly gets to a point, sort of like Monopoly, where Two people are just sort of trading, you know, blows back and forth at one another. But, I mean, it's a base tactical game that I can imagine Locke will get into it, even if he's not using the right pieces.
2: Um, we get our first Nadia sighting in this episode. As Claire's, like, gathering all this stuff for the memorial, we see Saeed gets the picture of Nadia, and I am just getting angry <laughs> thinking about it. Uh, it's too early to be this mad about the fact that Saeed and Nadia don't wind up together. Uh, and I'm sure we will come up with justifications for it eventually, or we will try if it's possible later on. Uh, but, but yeah.
3: Yeah, we'll put a, we'll put a bookmark in that because that's sort of a nice hint towards like what's going on with Saeed. And we will find out what's going on with Saeed in just a little bit.
2: Yes. Uh, Sawyer is going to hand stuff over to Claire for the memorial because he's, you know, a scoundrel who's found all sorts of stuff. Uh, but this is stuff that he doesn't need. And so he's like, he's going to be very awkward. Right. It. It's like, here, I found some. Uh, ugh, just take it. Right. Like he gives her the stuff for the memorial. But I, I love that. I love that. It's, it's like it's a really nice note about like the fact that deep down inside, James Ford is not such a bad guy. Uh, he's done really, really horrible things. He says really, really horrible things. Um, but these are, you know, very thick, you know, pieces of armor that he wears to hide the fact that deep down inside he's just a kid whose whole life got rocked and ruined by a horrible event from his childhood. Uh, so I, I love that that's already here. That they're already trying to show a little bit of that layer. I also think that it is a recurring thing that, like. Sawyer will do something really terrible, like not quite kill the marshal, and then he'll try some sort of mea culpa. Yeah. Like he'll try and like make up for it somehow.
3: Yeah, and then he'll sway back over to, I don't know, hoarding asthma medicine, for instance. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Or or not, as it as it were. Uh we get our first setting, as we already said, of the man in black taking the form of somebody from a character's memory, uh, you know, transforming into Christian. Uh, though I think that that's more because Christian's body is on the island, such as the smoke monster rules exist. Uh, but that's something that I do want to track when the moment arrives. That it's not that he. It, it seems like the smoke monster, beyond being able to uh, transform into dead bodies that are on the island, can also briefly, at least, transform into the it, like can like human, become like a humanoid memory. Yes, basically for like brief flashes. Uh, So that hasn't quite happened here yet, but it's 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 definitely something that we want to watch.
3: Maybe there's something in the mythos about like needing to like have a permanent body there to like resin to, you know, remain more solid. And maybe you can only be flash in the pan if it's just briefly doting upon a character's memory, considering how fleeting our memories are anyway, when we dote upon them. So there might be something more in that that I'm certain we'll dig into over the course of these next myriad episodes.
2: Uh, and then Ben Martell wanted us to note, and this is a great note that uh, we'll we'll get to this much later in the series in season four in Cabin Fever, uh, which is uh, a John Locke episode that we'll see Locke post paralysis, and he's being wheeled around the hospital by Matthew Abaddon. Uh, oh, the remember him? Character. Yeah, I do. Well, I love Lance Reddick. And even the limited amount of Lance Reddick we get on Lost, I'm happy for. Uh, But Matthew Abaddon's going to ultimately be the guy who says to Locke, you should go on a walkabout. Uh, And that's going to lead Locke to Australia and lead him to the island. Uh, So that's fun. That's great. Mm -hmm. All right. How about story point four? Let's get into some production notes because there's a lot of uh, really compelling behind-the-scenes stuff, some analysis of the episode title That to, to once again, tip the cap to the Ben behind the curtain, Ben Martell compiling a lot of this information together and really doing the Jacobs work uh, here on Lost Down the Hatch. Uh, I think the most interesting thing is, Mike, did you know that this episode was originally conceived without Locke being in a wheelchair, that this yeah. was a late addition to Walkabout.
3: Wow, I cannot imagine Walkabout without that twist. I know.
2: It's like the fundamental aspect of this episode, but it was not always in there, and I think that that's a piece of why his paralysis is not mentioned in the entry on Locke in the series Bible, because I think it came relatively late. Uh, once again, pulling from Javier Griot Mark Swatch's Lost Will and Testament, and by the way, Javier Grio, Marks Watch is one of the the main writers behind Netflix's uh, Dark Crystal, uh, the the new TV series that just hit Netflix, 10 episodes long. If you're looking for something to binge right now, high, highly recommend it. It's really, really compelling. Uh, it's like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings with Muppets. How
3: can you go wrong? Oh, perfect combination.
2: Uh, really perfect combination, and it is a prequel to the movie of the same name from... The early 1980s. So, if you're looking for a free recommendation, there you go. Uh, but this is from Javi's Lost Will and Testament. A little bit of a read, so bear with me. Uh, he says in his in his uh, in his Lost Will and Testament that the idea that Locke was in a wheelchair was so late in addition to his episode that the entire story once existed without it. Even though we knew from the very first day that Locke's arc would be that of a warped, frustrated, middle aged man who, feeling his survival was a mystical was a mystical revelation. He would recast himself as a sort of shamanistic badass on the island. The wheelchair itself was almost an afterthought. The original story break for that episode focused on Locke being a meek, if physically able, office drone whose hopes and dreams had all fizzled out. And he was trapped in a loser job where he was mercilessly abused and passed over by entitled, superficialist younger co-workers. The original story break ended with Locke who had bragged to his office rivals about embarking on the adventure of a lifetime alone and miserable in a bus heading away from an outback tourist trap, realizing that his dreams of being a great adventurer were just that it was not until the episode had been plotted that Damon rushed into the writer's room and pitched his overnight brainstorm that there should be a sixth sense like twist that Locke should be sitting in all of his scenes. And it's not until the end that we realize he was in a wheelchair all along, adding a layer of cruelty and poignancy to the abuse and skepticism he suffered from his coworkers, and creating the shocking series-defining reveal that the island had healed Locke and his transcendence may have been the product of a higher cosmic force at work on the island. Overnight brainstorms were not unusual for Damon, who tended to come up with his best ideas when given a creative foundation and then some time outside of the intellectual blood sport slash competitive group therapy of the writer's room. It was in much the same way that he came up with the idea that Jack's father's casket would be on the plane, but his body would not be found, leading to occasional appearances on the island by his ghost." The episode's writer, David Fury, initially argued against the lock-in-a-wheelchair twist. He held held fast to the contention that he had already rendered a very Willy Loman-esque version of the story, where Locke was a truly tragic figure. In David's arguments, the wheelchair twist was a kind of supernatural crutch that robbed the character of a pathos that felt lived-in and real. Being showrunner, Damon eventually prevailed. Being a consummate professional and an exceptional artist... Fury rendered the story so well that he was not only able to deliver the twist, but also overcome his objections to bring to Locke all the Willy Loman-esque tragedy he saw in the story before it went supernatural. As I said before, Locke in a Wheelchair was widely seen as the turning point when Lost went from being a hit pilot premiere to being a hit show. That episode, Walkabout, made our buzz go critical and was also the source of an Emmy nomination for David. Once again from The Lost, Will, and Testament of Javier Grio, Mark Swatch, one of the writers of season one of Lost, and season two uh, of
3: I, I think we need, like, a Drunk History X dramatic reenactment of Damon Lindelof running into the writer's room in the 11th hour and coming up with this absolutely brilliant twist. I would argue one of the best twists in television history because, I mean, I just, again, I cannot imagine the episode without it, and it really does nail the podium. I do get Fury's point about how Maybe it, it might have pushed things over the top, if done in a different way, from this very Willie Loman-esque turn that they're building up Locke to be this guy who just can't get a break. But, it, it, I don't know, it really is the cherry on top of the cake, and it really quite literally physicalizes the constraints that Locke feels in his normal everyday life, and the fact that he loses those constraints on the island make that transformation even more meaningful. Uh this is also from the
2: Hatch a Lost podcast by Rosie Murphy and Sammy Roth which once again a great source of information and a must listen for Lost fans if you're enjoying what we're doing here certainly one of my hopes and goals is that like it's inspiring you to not only go and rewatch Lost but engage of all engage in all of the incredible lost material that's either already out there or is ongoing right now, and that includes very much the Hatch, a lost podcast by Rosie Murphy and Sammy Roth. Where in an interview with David uh, David Fury, David Fury had said that Damon's idea came from him rewatching the pilot, looking for things that could become eventual hints as to the story that followed. The wheelchair was present in Pilot, and seeing it provided Damon with the spark of the idea. So I think that that Mike is is you know further. Uh, further cementing this idea that there was so much that was like richly baked in to the pilot, both intentionally, deliberately, and other things that were just like, there to be plucked low hanging fruit or even like fruit that you needed to climb a tree and risk dropping your antenna for that. You could then go and you could, you could grab that fruit and take the seeds and plant a new tree and come up with something like the lock in a wheelchair route.
3: Yeah. Lots of plot pigs running around and you have so, so many knives and pencils you can use to write it all down.
2: Um, all right. So Ben Martell also wanted to educate everybody on, uh, what a walkabout is. Even is. So this is, uh Ben Ben says this is his very best understanding. Ben coming from New Zealand uh, and says, I've been working to get this absolutely right for quite a while. And I think it's worth encouraging anyone who thinks they can add to it to contribute through feedback. So if this does not quite fit the bill for you, if you are listening to this, you know more about walkabouts. Hell, you may even know more than Troy's hand does on the subject. Please let us know, of course, down the hatch at But This is Ben's writing On what a walkabout is. Traditionally, a walkabout is a rite of passage for adolescent Aboriginal Australian males, where they would go into the wilderness, sometimes for a long time, to connect with the land and learn through Aboriginal skills and beliefs. Uh, The walkabout has both practical and spiritual connotations. This is consistent with the walkabout that Locke was seeking to go on. More commonly, Walkabout has been used to describe any time an Aboriginal Australian observes cultural traditions by going into the wilderness, not just the right. The connection to the land is an extremely important and central part of Australian Aboriginal culture, as an example, in the Gugu Yimithirr language, which is, I'm sorry if I'm watching the pronunciation on that, from which the word kangaroo comes, yeah. people greet each other and describe locations based on the cardinal direction they are traveling. Uh, the cup is to the northeast of the plate, for example. So at all times, they must know exactly where they are and where they are facing and going. Uh, the extent of this connection to the land is hard to understand to a European mind in which the outback can appear to be a large, empty space which as somebody from New York City and, you know, born and raised on Long Island, that is traditionally what I think about when I think about Australia. So uh, certainly educating me of just how vast uh, the Outback is.
3: Yeah, though, to be fair, we both are used to, uh, you know, raising ourselves in New York City, which actually does go off cardinal directions as well. So it's (laughs) quite the opposite of a wide space. It's a very cramped space, but there's this idea of sort of, you know, deriving your location from where you are in, in, you know, in in relation to another thing. But yeah, I did, I did not realize how well connected to the land, you know, not only the Aboriginal culture is, but how that connects to this idea of a walkabout and why, as Locke says, you know, the walkabout, this idea of renewing your connection to the land and gaining a new understanding of it, why it is so important there.
2: Uh, so this was interesting to me that I did not realize that apparently uh, there's racist connotations with the word walkabout. Uh, Ben Martell writes again, he says, Unfortunately, the word walkabout needs to be used with caution. This is because the way it has been used in Australian culture is generally to attack Aboriginal Australians as lazy and unreliable. The walkabout is commonly perceived and portrayed as aimless nomadic wandering. If an Aboriginal Australian does not arrive where people expect them to be or meet a, responsible, uh, a responsibility that people expect them to meet, it's been common for it to be said that they've gone walkabout. Oh. As, an, as an example, Andrew Walker, an international rugby player of Aboriginal descent, didn't show up for team training one day, instead staying home with his pregnant wife. This was reported as him having, quote unquote, gone walkabout, and he was afterwards often referred to as walkabout walker, an epithet which obviously would not have been given to a non-Indigenous player. Uh, It's worth noting that this predates the episode of Lost, so it was already a racially charged term even at the time. However, awareness has become much greater since that time. Generally speaking, when being accused of, quote unquote, going walkabout, Aboriginal Australians are simply observing cultural norms around the importance of family and the land. Uh, better terms to use than walkabout and uh, will depend on the specific circumstances. For anyone who's interested in learning more about how to be respectful about our Aboriginal Australian culture, we've got a great resource for that that's linked in our show notes. Um, but Mike, again, being you know from, from America where the word walkabout really isn't used in my life outside of the context of Lost, uh, this is something that was brand new uh, to me, and I thought pretty interesting.
3: Yeah, and it's also really interesting in that I'm sure the Writers of Lost, being Westernized as well, did not mean to, you know, bring up those connotations, but it actually brings even further meaning to the title a bit because Locke is somebody who thinks, oh, yes, I'm going to go on this devout journey where I'm going to, you know, wander and connect with the land, and everyone else sort of shirks it off as, oh, you're just going to go walk around for a little bit. So it almost underlines the connotations that are being given. And though Locke is not necessarily an Aboriginal, he's someone who is looking to ingratiate himself into the land, much like he's going to do with the island as well, when he really tries to get in with the others later on and really connect with people like Ben Linus and Richard Alpert, who have lived on the island for much longer to become a part of that land, where he can really, you know, renew his spirit.
2: Uh, I heard you say shirk, and then I just thought about wandabout. Uh, oh, boy. As, uh, an alternate name for the Lindelof whenever we get there, but I think the Lindelof is still too good to pass up. Um, apparently, uh, this episode was not going to be named walkabout uh, forever. There was a period of time where the writer of each episode got to name. Their episode, and Damon Lindelof preferred the name for this episode to be Lord of the Files. uh, Because, you know, John Locke being the box man who's working with the TPS reports and all that jazz. uh, So That would have been funny. But I am glad that they went with what they went with. Uh, David Fury being the writer of the episode got final say on the name. And he had a preferred naming style where a single word that connected the main theme of the centric characters through both the flashbacks and the Island story uh, would be delivered. And that scene, uh, not just here in walkabout, but he's also the writer of solitary, the Said episode that we're not terribly far away from uh, special the Michael and Walt episode. And of course uh, numbers, which I believe is Fury's last um, writing contribution to Lost. I think it's a, a co-writing uh, number uh, for numbers. Um all right. There's also there's some talk, Mike, that uh, in there was a version of Walkabout where the monster killed the boar. Ooh. Uh, that it wasn't Locke who killed the boar, and in at, at least one version of the script, uh, the man in black expressly killed the boar that Locke had carried back to camp. And in the final cut of the episode, you can hear a boar scream during Locke's encounter with it. So it does let you know, leave you to wonder, Mike. Like, did the monster? kill the boar for Locke as like an offering, right? Or is the sound clip included in the episode as an accidental reminder or remainder rather or, or blooper after the intentional decision to have Locke kill the boar for himself? But what I like, what I prefer is that when Locke says what I saw was beautiful when he tells the story, like he says, like I saw a bright light, um, you know, to to echo is what he says, is like that it's not only he's like seeing like flashes of his memories and of of both real Helen and telephone Helen and him kissing and all of that good stuff. Uh but he also sees the monster like savagely kill a boar and leave it for him and be like this is the way. Go back and be a hero to your people. I love that version of this especially yeah. as we know that the monster's going to be aggressively courting John Locke.
3: And I also like it as well because it's Locke really trying to again build himself up as like I'm this badass rambo survivalist guy when if it turns out that no He's just a regular guy who happened to walk into the path of a dead boar and brought it back and said, hail the conquering hero. That, again, really does a great job of underlining sort of the normal circumstances that John Locke is, that even though he can walk, he still is fundamentally an ordinary guy who works a nine-to-five in a box office. Uh, not the box office, but an office that sells boxes. So I really like that interpretation as well. It also ties together, you know, Locke and the the monster relationship as well. If, if the man in black starts to suss out John Locke as a possible target eventually down the line, this is a way to sort of Foster a connection and maybe start playing a bit of mind games. So I, I really like that theory. I think that's canon for me right now.
2: So there's a the the series bible contained a bunch of examples of stories of like island stories that they could tell on Lost. I think like thirty different examples. That are like, all right, ABC Brass, you wonder if we've got a show on our hands. Here's proof that we do. We've got thirty different stories of what could happen on the island for your viewing pleasure. And they listed out all of these different scenarios. And some of them, like the, the, the DNA of those ideas make it onto the show. I'm sure, just off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of a good example. Some of them make it into the show wholesale. And then some are dead. Some never see the light of day. And I think when we, we come across one of those stories from the series Bible that's worth mentioning in connection to one of these episodes, I think it's worth bringing up. So this was from the series Bible, Mike, that one of the ideas that that they pitched in the series Bible, it was called the cat problem. This was going to be a storyline for an episode. What? Uh, and don't talk to me about cat problems. I've got the cat problem. Uh, and the cat problem, Mike, was this. A series of flashbacks drastically counterpoint Locke's former life as an office drone with the warrior he was. He had always dreamed himself to be when he boldly decides to hunt down the three predatory jungle cats that are raiding the camp and devouring the dwindling food supply. Uh, so in another universe, Mike... Uh, It's John Locke versus a bunch of jungle cats and walkabout.
3: Oh my god! All right, here's what happens. Cut to first thing in the episode. Charlie, what the bloody hell were those? Locke,
2: pumas, <laughs> cheetahs. And now that and now that <laughs> I can Jaguars. walk again. Now that I, now that I can walk again, I'll be fast enough to hunt them down.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna stick with the boars. I think the- <laughs> yeah, I'm personally a fan of the boars. The boars' heads, in particular. Yeah, there's just something goofy about Locke hunting a bunch of S- Siamese tigers. <laughs> that is real goofy to me. It's too
2: much, a little too much. I think. Uh, I like it. I think it's fun. But uh, I'm glad that that stayed uh, stayed in the in the in the pages of history. Uh, some Emmy nominations for Walkabout. Terry O'Quinn, of course, was nominated uh, for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor. For his work in Walkabout and The Moth. I feel like he wins eventually. Maybe he wins a Golden Globe.
3: He, uh, I, no, he wins an Emmy. I want to say it's for season... He won the year after Emerson did. I don't know if it's season five, maybe. Either season four or five, I want to say. Okay, well, we can we can track that down at some point. Uh, and David
2: Fury was nominated, as we had mentioned, for Outstanding Writing for this episode. All right, that's four stories. Mike, let's get into the sounds. There are so many to play through. This episode is juicy. There's just so much great material here. And I know we've already talked about a lot of the stuff that we'll play here. But how can we not listen to some of these great, great moments uh, from Walkabout? And I, I think we, uh, you know, we certainly we, we had the cold open for this episode that has the first encounter between Locke and Randy, and that's going to be uh, a scene that follows the first sound that will play here. I will just note, since we won't replay uh, the first moment from the Locke flashback in this episode, one of the things that's so great about that, as it smashes from Locke, uh, you know, trying to file away his TPS reports to credits, you hear, like, typing and, you know, like, computer droning noises in the background that are absolutely monster noises. Yeah. It's great. That's so great. Yeah. That's so clever. It's so great. And it's obviously, it's like one of those things that now we've got it from that David Fury interview with the Hatch podcast, where it's like, Damon would go back and he would look at stuff and be like, what can we do with that? And you got to imagine there was some point deeper into loss or like, we're going to kill Locke and the monster is going to become Locke. Uh, we've got so much great ways, uh, so many great ways of
3: tying that together eventually. And that's just one of them. All right, let's uh, let's give a listen though to Locke's entrance into this. Basically, episode. like his
2: first, his first like real scene on. Yeah,
3: this. outside of outside of Batgaming with Walt, this is really where John Locke makes his mark and what's coming he, out party and where he hits his mark or he missed, depending on your interpretation of things.
4: What's your problem? Hand them over. How about no? There's other
3: people here don't you give a crap?
4: Yeah, well, one of us wouldn't eat more than a fair Oh, snack. that's bowling. Hey, you, you
3: know guys, course, knock it off. You're not happy unless
1: you're screwing hey, over. I'm pork don't. pie. Guys, knock it off. Stay out of this metro. Hey, freak. <sighs> What's going on?
4: The here is holding the last of the peanuts. My own stash. I found it in there.
1: What about the rest of the food? There is no rest of the food, dude. We kind of eat it all. What? Okay, everybody, just calm down. We're, we can find food. There are plenty of things on this island we can use for sustenance. And exactly how are we going to find the sustenance?
0: <laughs> we hunt.
1: How'd you get that knife on the plane? Checked it. You either have very good aim or very bad aim, Mr. Locke. His name is Locke.
0: Okay, Mr. Locke, what is it that we're hunting? We know there are wild boar on the island. Razorbacks by the look of them. The ones that came into the camp last night were piglets. 100, 150 pounds each. Which means that there's a mother nearby. A 250-pound rat with scimitar-like tusks and a surly disposition who'd love nothing more than to eviscerate anything comes near. Boar's usual mode of attack is to circle around charge from behind, so I figure it'll take at least three of us to distract her long enough for me to flank one of the piglets, pin it, and slit his throat. And you gave him his knife back?
3: <laughs> I think uh, my favorite Loki might have been that one extra who's Wait a minute, there's no food left.
2: Yeah. What is happening? That <laughs> That's uh, Sarah, Sarah Stripes.
3: Sarah Stripes! She makes her first
2: appearance. Yeah, she was upset. She's. Re- I'm so sad that Locke wanted to slit the throat of the piglet. I just think of Piglet from. Uh, from oh, p- oh from dear, Pooh. Yeah. What's this
3: man doing? Oh, bother. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing with that knife, Piglet. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's very upset. Ah, and, then, and, then, and then Locke hunts Tigger, one of the predatory jungle cats. That makes right. sense. Yeah, if he can uh, catch I- him. I- I will say, these people are showing remarkable restraint. I think the first thing I would say if Locke threw a knife was, you don't do that! Stop that! (laughs) Don't do that in this camp! You just almost hit somebody! We've only been here for
2: four days! We're not that uncivilized that we're throwing knives at each other, man!
3: Stop! Are you a circus performer? If so, stop it!
2: Unbelievable. All right, let's get to sound. Number two, you already heard the first matchup between Randy and Locke. Let's hear... Round two, and it gives us a couple instances of Johnny Boy's signature line.
4: Move. You've got
0: to move, Colonel. Your troops are across enemy lines. Patience. The quality which you lack, GL-12, is the hallmark of a leader. Hallmark, huh? Tell me more about being a leader, Locke. While you're at it? Tell me about this colonel thing. Cruised your file
1: in human resources? You've never been in any of the armed forces.
0: I'm just playing a game, Randy. It's, it's my lunch hour. I can play a game. Yeah. Tell me, what's a um, walk about? Experience the dream journeys of the fabled Australian outback. You have no right taking that off my desk. So you wander around hunting and gathering food, right? On foot? Not that you would understand, but a walkabout is a journey of spiritual renewal, where one derives strength from the earth and becomes inseparable from it. I have vacation days. I'm going, Randy. I already made a reservation. Wow, John, you're really doing it, huh? You tell Helen, yet? Helen? Oh, what's this, Locke? You've actually got a woman in your life. That's none of your business. What is it with you, Locke? Why do you torture
1: yourself? I mean, imagining you're some, uh, hunter? From walkabouts? Wake up. You can't do any of that.
0: Norman Croucher. What? Norman what? Norman Croucher. Norman Croucher. Double amputee, no legs. And he climbed to the top of Mount Everest. Why? It was his destiny. That's what you think you got, old man? Destiny? Just... Don't tell me what I can't do.
4: John, he's hurt. John, can you hear me? Locke. John, you okay? Locke.
0: I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm fine, Helen. I just got the wind knocked out of me as well. Hey. Helen? What?
4: You called me Helen. Did
0: I? Which <sighs> <sighs> way'd that boar go?
4: Uh-uh. Michael's hurt. We have to get him back to camp.
0: Yeah, you take him back to camp. I'm going to get that boar.
4: What are you talking about?
0: I'm fine. I can do this. John,
2: you can't.
0: Don't tell me what I can't do.
2: Don't ever tell this man what he can't do. Randy is a
3: terrible boss! Bad boss. Bad guy. Bad Randy. I mean, he is breaking so many HR stipulations in not only going through Locke's personnel file, but flaunting it in front of him and Mick's company. Like, that's that's just a a horrible breach of privacy.
2: It's awful. It's terrible. And uh, this is one of the... Uh, one of the few real blemishes in Hugo Reyes' own record, that he's, you know, he's he's going to work for Randy at Mr. Clucks for a while. Then he's going to win the the lot- lottery and be super rich. He's going to buy the box company, and he's going to give Randy a, a managerial job at the box company. If you get that rich, just bury Randy. You yeah. know, just bury him in the yeah, ground bang, like Nikki and Bob.
3: Pay Saeed in the flash forward yeah. future to just knock off Randy for you and Locke's purposes. We should also mention that Randy has the douchiest facial hair I've seen in quite some time. He's got a weird, like, chin-strap-goatee combination that's twice as awful.
2: Though just everything about Randy is horrible. It's just the worst, absolutely. The worst Randy. I hate Randy. All right. Completely. Uh, let's go to the next sound in our continuing walkabout through John Locke's existence uh, in this episode. And this is Locke having a conversation with another person from his off-island life.
0: I have never felt so alive. Getting to finally tell Randy off was uh, life-changing. I mean it. Now I'm, I'm free to do all those things I ever wanted to do things that i know i was destined to do like we talked about helen
4: it's wonderful john i'm happy for you really
0: <laughs> and i haven't even told you the best part do you remember the authentic aboriginal walkabout
4: sure that's all you've talked about for weeks
0: yeah well I- i'm gonna do it i'm flying to australia at the end of the week and i've uh I bought two tickets. Helen?
4: John, we've talked about this. I like yeah, I, you, I and I've enjoyed talking with you yeah, these so past I. few months. Eight months. I'm not allowed to meet customers.
0: A customer? Is, uh, is, is, that, is that what I am to you,
4: really normal i mean it isn't what i do i don't maybe you should find a i don't know a therapist
0: i have a therapist john i thought you understood helen you you know me better than anyone John, if
4: we talk any longer i'm gonna have to charge you for another hour that's another 89.95 you can't
0: look i don't care about the money i just i'm
4: sorry john i gotta
0: go helen helen
4: helen helen
3: Eagle-eyed viewers, especially the second time around, might notice that uh, by John's bedside is a nerve simulator machine, which, if you know your medical devices, would have been a big hint as to the big twist we would have saw in the next flashback scene.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's great, right? Like, they they do a lot that makes this a very rewarding episode, Uh, and, like, the people who say that, like, this is the perfect Lost episode— it's hard for me to argue. Like they there there was so much thought. It's such an elegant hour of television. It's just it's it's really, really great. What I love about that clip in contrast to the one we heard before it and the one we heard be- before that, these are like three very different locks uh we've already encountered. Uh the first lock, chronologically the most recent lock, is him like presenting himself as like do not worry everybody. I can mm-hmm. take care of us. I can provide for us. I know exactly how to do it and what to do and I'm going to go out there, and i'm going to go do it right now. Um The lock and sound too, when he's you know going to war with Randy he's doing it in very like a, a very timid way, but like yeah. but defiant and 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 you know believing in himself, but in a way where like he does not yet have that bravado to stand up to Randy the way that he would really like to, and then the lock that we hear talking to Helen. Is a very vulnerable lock that crumbles and falls away and quickly gives way into that lock who's just constantly being disappointed, that lock who's constantly losing, that lock who's often wrong. Um, and I think all of those versions of that character swirl together in the fourth and final lock sound that we've got here on the eight sounds.
0: walkabouts we arrange here not just some stroll through the park it's trekking across vast stretches of desert rafting bloody treacherous Look, you've it's got climbing. no idea who you're talking to i'm well aware of what's involved believe me i probably know more than you on the subject in any case it's a trying ordeal for someone in peak physical condition that alone own... I-, I booked this tour a month ago you've already got my money now i demand a place on that bus you misrepresented yourself i never lied by omission mr Locke. You neglected to tell us about your condition. My condition is not an issue. I've lived with it for four years. It's never kept me from doing anything. Well, unfortunately, it is an issue for our insurance company. I can't keep the bus waiting any longer. It isn't fair to the other but people. Don't talk to me about fair. I'll get you on a plane back to Sydney on our dime. It's the best I can No, I, I don't want to go back to Sydney. Look, I've been preparing for this for years. Just put me on the bus right now. I can do this. no. Account. hey hey don't you walk away from me you don't know who you're dealing with don't ever tell me what i can't do ever this is destiny this is destiny this is this is my destiny this is, i'm supposed to do this damn it don't tell me what i can't do don't tell me what i can't
2: Tenders for the best moment of Lost, <laughs> let alone the best episode,
3: that is absolutely on the list. Oh uh, my God. Yeah, there's, uh, there's never a time that I don't watch that scene or even listen to it like we did now that I don't get chills. It's just Michael Giacchino does a brilliant job. And Ben Martel notes that Michael Giacchino very rarely does one piece of music that connects through all the scenes that flash through the timeline. Usually it's like, one piece of music for Australia, one piece of music for the crash site, one piece of music for the pyre. But there's one piece that just ties all through. It's the ballad of John Locke, right. essentially. And it just it drives the scene so much. I mean, the strings get overwhelming. It's a great representation of just John's bur- burgeoning anger and sadness. Terry O'Quinn's performance in this scene is incredible because it's so unbridled. Uh, you know, there's a moment where he, when he wheels back, and he starts muttering to himself that this is his destiny, you see that smirk creep across his face a little bit. It's what he's telling himself. I'm sure it's what he's told himself every single day since he decided to book this walkabout. And then when the bus pulls away, his face just falls, and you see it in those big blue eyes, and it is heartbreaking. I have I have one big note about a big line in this scene, but I want to get your thoughts on it first. Okay, uh, I mean, I want to hear what the note is. (laughs) I mean, please keep going. So we talk about don't tell me what I can't do. What I think is an interesting difference is Locke says in this scene, don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever. Which to me, I don't know how you feel, Josh, that's different to me than don't tell me what I can't do. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever, implies finality. And it's almost, like, it's not just motivational. It's defiant. And it's almost hinting towards me that jo- that Locke is almost driven to a fault. He's faithful to a fault where this is his driving mantra. He's going to keep working at it even at the cost of everything around him. And that's what that line really symbolized to me is like, He's never you're even if he's wrong, you can't tell him what he can't do. Cause he's gonna feel like he's right no matter what. And I feel like that speaks volumes about John Locke more than anything.
2: Everything is on his terms. You know, like everything yep. everything that John Locke does, is on his terms. It's af- after he he brings Anthony Cooper and Sawyer into the brig in season three and, you know, basically cons Sawyer into killing his father, the man who killed Sawyer's father. And afterwards, they're outside the ship, and uh, I I love the line delivery when Terry O'Quinn throws him the tape recorder uh, and says Juliet is a mole, uh, and he's like tell, he's like giving him the information of like they're you know they're they're coming, the others are on their way, go back to camp and tell everybody what's going on, and uh, so he's like I thought you were with them now, are are you with the others, or are you with us? And Locke says at what to that point is one of the most telling things about Locke. Is he says, I'm on my own journey. I'm not with mm. anyone. I'm on my own journey. And uh if patience is the hallmark of a good leader, I think for Locke, maybe the reason why he's not like the best leader is he is he is so focused on his purpose uh and his agency in his life, uh, and finally reclaiming that agency for the first time. Uh, a bravado in fact that's going to get him shot in the chest yep. a couple of episodes later or yeah, maybe it's i think hanging out just with one episode
3: of, yeah hanging out with a bunch of bodies in a pit
2: you know b o d y s like he's going to be in the mosh pit of the of the dead Dharma initiative so like lock you're right i think you know he will not be told what to do and it'll get him close to killed and then actually killed uh so great aspects of that character and uh he he represents this great cautionary tale of the danger of believing too much uh, you know it's the tension between science and faith that's all throughout lost uh and jack is this huge extreme for so long that's much to his own detriment and nearly gets him killed you know drives him to uh you know suicidal ideation and and nearly at a point where he's about to throw himself off a bridge because he's so desperate because he just didn't believe it all and he allowed himself to to you know get to the place that he gets to uh in the flash forward timeline uh and for Locke it's the opposite of like just like believe 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 all the way to the grave um and it yes. ends up being Jack who gets to embody uh what can what is possible when you when you can marry these two disciplines where you can well, speaking- uh, yeah, where you like, can, like, believe in, like, objective power and, you know, the power of objectivity and the power of subjectivity.
3: Well, speaking of Jack, let's actually move into some non-John Locke stuff over the course of Walkabout with our remaining four sounds. Cause, yeah, let's talk about the man of science here, because speaking of man of faith, he's not concerned with faith nor anybody's faith. Uh, let's talk about what Jack's initial handling of the concept of holding a mass funeral for those who died in the crash.
1: Those boars we're looking to feed... We have to get rid of the bodies. Bury them. There's a whole bunch in there. More than 20. Digging will be difficult without shovels. Not bury. You need to burn them.
4: They're people.
1: I know they're people, Kate. Burning the remains. They deserve better than that. Better than what? Being eaten by wild animals? Because that's what's going to happen. Any bodies we bury are not going to stay buried for very long. Look, I know this seems harsh. But that fuselage in the sun... It's not about what they deserve they're gone and we're not what you say may be true but for us to decide how these people are laid to rest it's not right no regard for their wishes their religions we don't have time to sort out everybody's god really last i heard we were positively made of time look i'm not happy about it either but we crashed a thousand miles off course they're looking for us in the wrong place it's been four days No one's come. Tomorrow morning, we need everyone to start gathering up wood, dried brush, and turn that fuselage into a furnace. Wait until the sun goes down tomorrow night before we set the fire. He's so eager to burn the bodies, why are we waiting until some now?
4: He's hoping someone will see it.
3: So, yes, Jack is coming off like a jerk or a jackass, if you will, (laughs) uh, in his, I would say, very impersonal handling of the bodies. But I would say in defense of Jack, like I sort of mentioned beforehand, I think that, A, the fact that he just had to kill a person, combined with the fact that I feel like, as a person in the medical professional, especially someone who is quote-unquote born into it like Jack was, there is a certain way that you approach the concept of dealing with dead bodies that has to remove your heart a bit from the situation as you remove other people's hearts, ironically enough. Uh, and I wonder if Jack is sort of approaching that like a medical person would, of, okay, these are no longer people, these are just bodies, so we're going to have to dispose of them. Whereas everyone else, just their various backgrounds, I think they see more humanity. You know, they're talking about ways to really send off their spirits. Jack is much more pragmatic, but as a result, he's coming across very... Very callous. This is not going to be the Jack that we'll see one episode later trying to embrace this leadership role false and all.
2: Well, what's what's great about it, too, is it's like a it's a real lack of bedside manner, right? Like for for Jack, who, like you say, very callously just wants to burn the bodies, even though for all we know, like some of these people might be important to some of the survivors uh you know some of the the background extras that we just don't know very well uh you know it's really just a, a bad display of jack's uh you know abilities to empathize with with others and express like sympathy and and regret and sorrow and and sharing that with other people and yet as we go into sound number 6 uh which is actually mirroring uh, or or merging two scenes together Here's Jack and Rose together after he finally gets her to open up while she's off on her own. Uh, And she's going to say the opposite about Jack's demeanor.
5: His fingers swell. Sorry? Bernard, my husband. His hands swell up whenever we fly.
1: The altitude.
5: He started having me hold on to his wedding ring whenever we took a plane trip. I always wore it around my neck for safekeeping just until we landed. You know, Doctor, you don't have to keep your promise. Promise? The one you made me on the plane to keep me company until my husband got back from the restroom letting you off the hook.
1: (laughs) Well, you're not going to get rid of me that easily. Rose, you shouldn't be out here alone. You're suffering from post-traumatic shock.
5: Aren't we all?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess we are.
5: You have a nice way about you good soul patient, caring I suppose that's why you became a doctor
1: thanks but I was just kind of born into it family business Rose after the sun goes down we're going to burn the fuselage it's it's just something that we have to do there's going to be a memorial service back at the camp for those for those who didn't make it for everyone to say goodbye
5: I'd like to be there for that okay
1: maybe if you wanted to say something you know about your husband what? I'm just saying if you wanted to say goodbye to Bernard.
5: Doctor, my husband is not dead.
1: Rose, he was in the tail section of the plane. It broke off in mid-flight. I'm sorry, but everyone who was in the rear of the
5: plane is gone. They're probably thinking the same thing about
4: us.
2: Some fabulous foreshadowing on uh, the tailie action there. Of course, as R- as Rose is saying, Bernard's alive. He's probably yeah. thinking that we're we're you know what's going on with everybody else. It's like, oh, cool. Well, we'll definitely get into that. Thank you <laughs> for for planning that here.
3: Is he even? Is he going to be the one that talks to Boone on the beachcraft? Yeah, they it, they it was specifically they rec- him.
2: Yeah, they recon it so that that's the case. I think it's Ian oh, okay. Summerhalder's own voice, like shouting back at himself in the way that they filmed it, but season two will show that it's Bernard who's talking back. So
3: they John Terry'd him, basically.
2: Yeah, essentially, essentially. There's some other things in here that are great um, that I actually hadn't even picked up on until this this most recent listen-through uh, of when it's it's not just that Rose is complimenting Jack's good spirit and his good soul. She, like, outright says that you're very patient. And what is it that John Locke says earlier in the episode? That patience is the hallmark of a good leader yeah Uh, there's jack shepherd getting the john Locke endorsement
3: and i think it is interesting in that jack is sort of admonished by everybody throughout the episode you know he ends up not participating in the ceremony he makes claire speak in his stead but rose is the one that really picks the good qualities out of him and i do have to wonder what that sort of brings out of jack as well it's clear he's tempestuous at the moment, as Rose alludes to. He's going through his own sort of sense of post-traumatic shock, which I think almost manifests itself in Jack's mind in seeing his dead father. That's probably the first thing that's the forefront of his mind. But the fact that Rose is able to say, like, Jack, I know you're behaving this way, but you're patient and you're caring, even though you're not in this episode— and Jack, again, shrugs it off by saying, no, you know what? I, I was just born into being a doctor. Those aren't qualities that I necessarily have. It's it's kind of weird to see the aw shucks Jack Shepard because we yeah. don't get him very much in Lost. <laughs> not a ton,
2: not a ton. But I, I like that word you use there, tempestuous. Uh, I, I think that there is like a storm that's always raging inside of Jack Shepard. And you get it here. I think that he doesn't wear compliments very easily. He wears the survivor buff a little bit better. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, I, I do think that like, He's getting this from Rose, and then he's going to see his father shortly thereafter, and everybody's having this funeral, and he's just not quite ready to let go of any of that. Uh, and you get that other great line here, right? It's a it's a recurring line throughout Lost of uh, Rose saying, I'm letting you off the hook. Uh, that's something we'll hear a lot throughout Lost. We'll hear that later this season. It's going to be among Boone's final words to Jack when he says, like, Stop trying to to save me. I'm letting you off the hook. Uh, and I I believe that even uh, Sarah, his first wife, um, is is
3: Mrs. Claire
2: Dumphy herself. Is, is, that she's gonna uh, she's gonna say those exact words to Jack during the surgery in the season two premiere. I'm letting you off the hook. That promise that I'll that you know I'll dance at my wedding. I'm letting you off the hook. Um, and so I I imagine. You know, we like to do the retconning game here, but like think about how that would sit with Jack in that moment. Those would be that would be such a famous turn of phrase in his life already. uh, To hear that here, Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of things that are causing the man of science already to have some some you know, collisions with faith. Yeah. Um, and I
3: also will say, uh, yet, yet again, credit where credit is due. Jim Fells brought up in his great video, how that's a thing that comes up with a, whenever somebody is either brought into or excluded from the group. And Jack trying to bring Rose into the fold to participate in the burial, I think is a uh, very representative of that.
2: All right, let's get in some whimsy with our final two sounds. So serious here on, uh, the, the eight sounds this week, let's get, uh, one of my favorite scenes from this episode uh, it's just so great. I don't want to set it up any further than that.
0: Uh, hi,
1: hi. Excuse me. Um, um I am going off away to a hunt, and um,
0: I, I, I was wondering if you, um, if if you could uh, keep an eye on my boy, Walt.
1: And, and, and I'm Michael Anyway uh, Could you watch
0: him for me uh, uh,
4: Until I come back uh,
1: Sorry, I, I don't understand But you're cool with this, right?
5: Uh, I don't need a babysitter
1: Come on, man Vincent needs you here
0: and, Hey, cheer up This will give me a chance To get to know your friend Mr. Locke a little better
4: yeah, whatever.
3: <laughs> I'm I'm slowly getting happier that we resolve this son, you know, sp- secretly speaking English plot line because I'm getting a little tired of Everyone slowly explaining <laughs> things to break the language barrier. It, it just doesn't play too well on audio. No,
2: it really, really doesn't. But when you watch the scene and Harold Parano as Michael is just like wildly gesticulating all of his points and really trying to just like charade his way through a conversation with Sun. And you just imagine from Sun's perspective being like, I just want to tell him I know everything he's saying and he can speed it
3: along also he saw me naked why is he approaching me
2: yeah it's a lot of questions
3: there i also i love the way that that scene ends with walt just being like whatever (laughs) to be fair i thought that he would ditch her but he's hanging out with her as she sort of again another little piece of foreshadowing starts uh, tending to some potted plants alluding to her green thumb later on
2: yeah and she shows him uh the the, what to use for toothpaste. toothpaste chia as walt likes to say uh all right, final sound here for the walkabout eight sounds, once again going into whimsy. And uh I was really hoping and, and frankly fully expecting that Mike and I would be able to speak in further detail about our own adventures that we have been on together over the last calendar year. Uh, but we cannot say anything. <laughs>
3: not a, yet. Not yeah, yet. Patience is the hallmark uh, of a good leader, uh, Josh. There is
2: still a communication barrier for us on this one. But in no time at all, you will uh, you will maybe appreciate this scene a little bit more as it pertains to Mike and I. But certainly, uh, you know, the and the great... Uh, epic friendship that you and I have forged in our years together Mike but this is really uh you know the, the 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 foundation of a great epic friendship that's about to transpire two of the best friends on the entire show in Charlie who is desperately trying to find a fish for Shannon and Hurley who is here to give him a helping hand.
4: You got it? Dude, would ask me that. All right. Just, you said you knew how to fish Yeah, I have to send him
1: on a computer with my old man and, and a fishing pole And bait Never had to try to poke on with a sharp stick
0: Well, uh Really appreciate you helping me out thanks. Hey,
1: anything that
4: keeps me far away from that fuselage And that freaking redneck jerk Ugh, Damn it, crap, crap Son
1: of a you want me to have a go? Pack yourself out. Okay, here comes one. Put your weight into it. You see? Wait boy.
4: Wait. No! <laughs> Dude, you got to try to pin it. You see how close yeah. I was? <laughs> no, you said I had to
5: corner it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. We're we're still in Goofy Charlie mode, and it, it's really tough to come across on an audio medium. But Dominic Monaghan throwing himself face first into the ocean—you have to imagine that was unscripted, right?
2: Yeah, I I think so. Like just like sort of like the bravado, which with with which he throws himself in there, just it it feels improvised. Like I I think like him like biffing and missing, like that's probably in there. Uh, but like the epicness behind it, I feel like that's, that's a grace note from, from Mr. Monaghan. It's so great. I love these two together so much Uh. Uh, on rewatches. I always really savor the Hurley and Charlie stuff in a way that, uh, maybe I didn't even fully appreciate on first watch because you know, that Charlie's only on lost for half of the run. Uh, so you really, when, when these two characters are together, you really got to love them together.
3: Yeah, plus we get a little bit of angry Hurley here with his crap, crap son of a bitch beating the uh, the ocean with their makeshift spear, which is what, like a a stick and a sharp piece of shrapnel, which I know <laughs> if we were able to do that, Josh, I think we'd be much more well equipped. We only do marginally better than Charlie and, Hur- and Hurley did here.
2: Yes, absolutely. So stay tuned for the further adventures of Josh and Mike doing their best Hurley and Charlie impression at some point in the near future. Uh, all right, before we get into the 1516 others, I want to thank some more friends of the podcast. Those are our friends, Mike, over at Sun
3: Basket. Oh, no. Do you have to really over-explain slowly what yes. Sun Basket is about?
2: I'll go really slow so you hear me. No, of course. I will give you the normal speed spiel on the great Sun Basket. No matter what you like to eat, Sun Basket makes it easy. They have paleo, carb-conscious, gluten-free, Mediterranean, diabetes-friendly, and vegan meal plans. Whatever you're into. And you can choose from 18 weekly recipes. Everything you need to eat clean and healthy sunbasket sends you organic produce and clean ingredients right to your door to create your own dishes from their recipes such as shrimp pad thai with rice noodles and sugar snap peas or hawaiian locomoco with teriyaki chicken and fried eggs mike you know i'm always going to be hyping that hawaiian garlic shrimp with the coconut Mm -hmm. rice
3: yeah, absolutely. That is your go-to. You would scarf it all down, you'd even hoard it away, and Harley would wrestle you over it.
2: Yeah, and I, I would have to, I wouldn't even have to like go into the ocean to fish the garlic shrimp myself. Sunbasket takes care of all the ingredients you need. And right now Sunbasket has a special promotion for Post show recaps listeners for up to sixty dollars off. That's thirty dollars off for your first two deliveries. It's a pretty great deal if it means putting meal planning on autopilot, and you can get in on some lunch planning, too, because Sunbasket also offers up five-minute salad mixes for an easy lunch that's going to help you eat clean and feel great. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in as little as 15 minutes. That's a lost number, so you know it's good. So so put meal planning on autopilot with this special offer. You can go to sunbasket.com slash post to get up to $60 off. That's sunbasket.com slash post to learn more about this limited-time $60 off special. All right, Mike. Let's get in to our 15, 16 others section. That is our feedback section that we do every week here on Down the Hatch. We want to be hearing from you, your questions, your comments, your letters, your observations, your everything. That's the 15 to 16 others that we are getting from you that you can send our way down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com or you can tweet at us. Mike is at A Mike Bloom type. I'm at Round Howard and postshowrecaps is at postshowrecaps. So other number one, Mike, people had a lot to say about our podcast, about Tabula Rasa. So we have to go back? We have to go back. I think people were really taken by uh, Ray Mullen, the peach man. Yes. J- Jordan from Wisconsin noted, uh, says, uh, wrote in and said, Do you think that Ray Mullen is a big fan, a huge fan, or a mega fan of the presidents of the United States of America? Uh, do you think that Ray Mullen, Mike, has eaten millions of peaches, peaches for free, in his lifetime?
3: I would say so. Uh, and it suffice to say, also, the President of the United States of America is a band, not just is Ray Mullen interested in American history, which you might initially think about when you read that question.
2: The only thing I like more than peaches is American politics. Uh, he's got a very big interest in what's going on in the U.S. Uh, yeah, Scott.
3: I I don't want to take a trip there. It'll cost me an arm and a leg. I already lost the arm. Yeah,
2: I can't afford it. Uh, Scott Ring had also written in with uh, Peach Man Power Rankings. These are the Peach Men, according to Scott Ring. In first place, Ray Mullen, King of the Peach Men. Uh, In second place, Caster Troy, a.k.a. Nicolas Cage from Face Off, (laughs) who could eat a peach for hours. Uh, And number three is James. Uh, as in James <laughs> and the Giant Peach,
3: I believe. Hopefully. Uh, I would imagine so. Though, I don't know. I guess a kid who can make friends with bugs either makes it to the very top or the very bottom of your power rankings, depending on what you're preferring.
2: Yeah, James in third place, I feel like, is a real diss It's James. Uh, Cur- uh, Curtis Morrison wrote in as well and said that he had had a revelation about Kate's lie to Ray Mullen about being Canadian. This is a little more serious Uh, Curtis writes, she says that she's Canadian and that she, quote-unquote, just graduated college, which is sort of a dead giveaway that she's lying. Why? Because unless they're literally graduating from a trade school like Niagara College or Algonquin College, Canadians use the term university. It's not like good old one-armed Ray would know this, but it's interesting nonetheless.
3: On top of that, Kate says this episode to Jack, I'm a vegetarian. But unless Mm. that bacon was made out of peaches, Josh, she was scarfing that down when she was with old Ray last time.
2: I think it was a joke, right? Like, you got to say it's a joke. Or at this point, it's like, I just got to eat whatever I can eat.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, I also wanted to note that I felt like we missed a big opportunity last week when we were talking about uh, stations instead of farms and wondering if Ray Mullen was working with the Dharma Initiative and we did not call it uh, the pharma Station. Like the, oh, The pharma initiative really uh, wrote itself, and we missed that.
3: Yeah, then it turns out that it's not just peaches. It's peaches and pills that Ray has stocked up.
2: Chris Falkenham had said that we, uh, we, we really dissed Locke. He was robbed of MVP points. He makes a whistle from scratch, not just a normal whistle, but a dog whistle. He finds Vincent, and he lets Michael take the credit. Should we start counting the number of times that Locke is just going to make something from scratch? On the island. Well, Chris, not to spoil the 23 points coming up, but I think Locke is not going to be robbed of MVP points this week.
3: Definitely not. Unlike him being robbed by his father several, several times in future (laughs) flashbacks. Of
2: his kidney, no less. (laughs) Uh, And Albert Vargas wrote in and said, I know I'm late for an official question for Tabula Rasa, but what the hell was Side thinking when he split up the groups to work on electronics, water, and other stuff? Why would he not be the leader of the electronics group? Um, I don't know. I think that Saeed was like kind of like casting himself as the leader of all of the groups.
3: Yeah, I think that he was trying to lead by delegation and I think that, you know, it will get to a certain point in Lost where Jack will be like, okay, I know you, you, and you are good at these things. So you're going to help me. He doesn't have any knowledge of these people's skills, so he's just like, okay, who who's going to volunteer? And then he just trusts them there. Plus, Saeed has his own bigger macro projects to work on, so maybe he can't necessarily be micromanaging another team at the same time.
2: All right, let's move on to other two. And now we're starting to talk about Walkabout proper. And a lot of different people wrote in without a question and really were just writing in to be like, This was the episode that changed everything for me. Mm. Uh, We had John Ross writing very similar stuff. Daniel Brennan wrote in and said something. Uh, Daniel Brennan had said, I'm convinced that anyone who has chosen not to watch along with you guys would reconsider if they just watched the final three minutes of Walkabout. I agree. Trevor Roberts, uh, the great Trevor Roberts, had also written something very similar. And then I wanted to read this from Under Meat. Who wrote in and said, I'm struggling to think of whether or not there's been a more incredible moment in lost history than the revelation that Locke was in the wheelchair followed by the throwback that he could walk after the crash. While not as spectacular as much of what is to come, I vividly remember the exact moment I was watching this the first time around, even all these years later. That moment along with the immortal don't tell me what I can't do was the genesis of when I realized this show was something special. The raw emotion in Terry O'Quinn's performance when you realize that he's this crippled, beaten up man that has some combination of fight, Stubborn defiance, outright delusion and denial, and a lack of confidence is incredibly powerful. And from this point forth, I was always a man of faith faith in John Locke.
3: That's, I mean, took the words right out of my mouth there. It's what this episode really succeeds on is that it paints Locke in such a complicated light immediately. With a lot of these other characters, it's going to take their flashback episodes for us to see, okay, they're not just the black and white character that we look at. There's a lot of shades of gray there, but there are so many different shades to John Locke. Even shown over the course of this episode, that's what really knocks it out of the park for yeah. me.
2: Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, people also chimed in to say that like, the brilliance of this episode was not just the the twist ending, but the fact that the twist ending is staring at you in the face- This entire time. Uh, Believe it or not, the war dog. Uh, (laughs) The war dog himself is uh, John Locke Stan. Uh and the wardog they had the same haircut it makes sense. The wardog uh, had written on Twitter and said that it was one of the best revelations in season 1 and never saw it coming and somebody challenged him on that notion like he never saw it coming it's so obvious in the episode and the wardog retorted and said it was hidden in plain sight. It's the same thing that happened when George Harrison released All Things Must Pass. The critics couldn't believe how good that triple LP was, but they should have known. He was a beetle. Once again, hiding in plain sight. There you go. The war dog shouting out the late, great George
3: Harrison and John Locke in one breath. Never thought I'd see that on social media. But you know what? Twitter surprises us in the best possible ways. You know, down the hatch is opening up all
2: sorts of possibilities here. Uh, So really, really lovely stuff. All right, other number four. uh, A lot of people just really throwing it out. uh, These ideas about how John Locke is a man of multitudes and really in a lot of ways is this character of two polar extremes. Monkey Joe had written in, do you think that the writers knew what they were doing in having Locke encounter and accept the smoke monster? Do you think that Locke would have had faith no matter what? Given the miracle of the island, Jess Sterling had also written in and said, please discuss the significance behind the decision to use the smoke monster noise instead of the normal whoosh that accompanies the flashback transitions in this episode. Was it a deliberate decision to elude to John's relationship with the Smoke Monster later in the series, um I, I we talked about this a little bit, Mike. I would say that I I don't think that they I think that there is no way that they could have fully known or appreciated the full shape of things to come with Locke becoming the monster or the monster taking on Locke's likeness later on, uh, his Lochness, the Lochness monster later on. In oh, this that's a theory. Se- it's a theory later on in this series, but I do think that this is these are great shiny examples of the writer room process hard at work here, right?
3: Yeah, I. it's definitely coincidental. I think they wanted to use, you know, the receipt printing noise because that was a taxi printing receipt is the noise they were used for sampling in the monster sound. So that was a nice little Easter egg. I don't think they meant to connect, oh, Locke is going to eventually become the monster. Maybe it hints toward this idea of Locke being tied into the island like we heard in his explanation to Randy. Uh, and When you go on a walkabout, you become inseparable, from the earth and i think that's what Locke is doing here on the island or at least what he wants to do i want to go back to monkey joe's question because i do wonder how much of his faith was imbued by seeing the monster and you know becoming monumentally affected by that do you think any sort of doubt that Locke had was completely removed upon seeing the monster yeah i think he sees
2: like this giant cloud of smoke that has like these flashes of glimmering light Inside of it, as it's assessing him as it's analyzing him, he's probably seeing a lot of his own life story playing out in the middle of the thin air right in front of him, and then maybe it drops a pig in front of him and it's like, "Here, eat this, and then it slinks off into the jungle. Yeah, that's a pretty magical moment, uh so I think that already Locke must have been fully feeling it with the fact that he could walk around on this place um but I think to survive that encounter really helps to drive that narrative for him of like okay, special things are in store for me.
3: Yeah, I call it extra credit.
2: <laughs> it's bonus?
3: Yeah, exactly. He already did the assignment... He, he's got an A right now, and it's just a little plus that will add onto the papers like, oh, and I get to meet a monster, too? This island's the best. Pretty
2: neat. Uh, <laughs> other number five is really just other people who are expressing how much they love John Locke. Uh, Miss Mira uh, is a big team Locke person. Miss Mira wanted to know if we both thought that Locke was supposed to be the bad guy mm. in the show. I think he was supposed to be in at least the first season, but personally, I think John is one of the most sympathetic characters out there. His story is so sad, and I am on Team Locke. I think, Miss Mira. So are we. Very much on Team Locke. Uh, and as far as Locke being the bad guy in the show, definitely not in the long run. Even though you know they give the bad guy Locke space, Terry O'Quinn ends up playing the bad guy yeah. in the show. Um, but that's a different matter. I-, I do think, don't you think so, Mike? That they're at least at the start. It seems like maybe they're setting that up. But I think that they have a change of heart. Maybe the deeper they write the character,
3: I would say, if it happens in one point in the series, it's season two. I think if we're supposed to believe that Jack is the hero, since Locke is in complete opposition of him with regards to the Hatch matter, then he firmly becomes the villain. But then we're going to move on to Ben in Season 3, Kimi in Season 4, Charles Widmore in Season 5, The Man in Black in Season 6, where we just sort of have moved on from that. And though Locke still might be a character that does bad things, he still does it with a good purpose. So I think that even Season 1 Locke, I don't think is necessarily... The bad guy, especially when you have Ethan Rom skulking around in the background, soon to pounce, much like a predatory jungle cat.
2: Idaho Joe <laughs> Amazing. Idaho Joe had wanted us to weigh in on our favorite lock moment. Um, and I think if you take the ending of this episode out because it's just a runaway, right? Like it's uh it's unfair uh to to put anything above the final uh scene of this episode of Walkabout. Uh, do you have one that stands out to you as just like when you think about John Locke, uh, a moment that really comes to mind?
3: Yeah, it's definitely the ending of Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, 100%, 100%, after 100%. the Beechcraft crashes, and this is John at his biggest crisis of faith moment, where he is just slamming on the hatch, and you hear that John Locke theme come in, and he's just yelling, like, I I did everything that I was supposed to do. I did everything you wanted me to do, so why have you done this to me? And then just this brilliant look where the light turns on. And as Locke mentions later on, maybe it was just Desmond going to the bathroom. But it's a profound moment in John where he has the biggest moment where the biggest thing he's believed in for the past month or so, he's now lost all faith in, and he's realized that maybe... His pursuing was for nothing. And then that light turns on, and the light turns on back again in John's eyes. And he realizes he has a renewed sense of purpose. It's just an absolute smash-driven ending. It adds a fun little mystery when it comes to the hatch as well as to what happens after that. But that's another great acting moment from Terry O'Quinn, where he is just at his w- wit's end. And he is truly, you know, just, just completely emotionally devastated.
2: Uh, another one, another top contender is coming next week uh, in White Ooh. Rabbit. Uh, so really, looking, uh, for me, it's obvious. We'll we'll get there, and it'll be it'll be such a great moment to talk about. Uh, other number six, John Kraus, once again giving us the goods. Lots of great feedback from John Kraus. Uh, writes it about Helen uh, and says the only thing I remember fans theorizing about after this episode aired back in two thousand four was who is Helen. Fans were convinced that Helen was important, which I guess they were kind of right. maybe Helen back at, was important. But looking back at this episode, it's funny that that's what people latched onto. Um, I guess I don't have the same memories of like, I don't think that I was so deep into Lost yet as of Walkabout that I was like looking at it online in granular detail and like looking on message boards to see what the theorizing was. Because I don't remember that at all. But man, if people thought that like, Helen was going to show up and be some sort of massively important player deep into the game of lost. Uh I mean Katie Seagal is really cool. Yeah. Uh Gemma Morrow Teller for life, but like I don't know.
3: Yeah, uh, screw that, Leela for life. Yeah, uh, I know Lila's but I, great too. But I would also say you were too busy. We open training. on an eye because <laughs> <laughs> she only has one. Because she uh, has one. I would say you were too busy concentrating on not failing your astronomy class, missing all those lectures. To watch I was, lost. yeah,
2: I was trying to study up Sawyer's conning techniques so that I'd be able to uh, to, to con my way out of an F in astronomy. Uh mission accomplished, thankfully. Uh, other number seven. Uh this is titled What Is Michael Thinking? Uh and it's a two pronged uh interrogation of one Michael Dawson. This is from Jordan Beck. Who writes and says, why does Michael have such a dislike for Locke? It doesn't track for me. Uh, Eric du- Duvestein, I'm, I'm pronouncing that wrong, I apologize, also wrote in and said, why on earth out of all the crash survivors did Michael choose the woman who speaks no English and that he awkwardly walked in on topless two days earlier to babysit his son? Uh, I don't have a great answer for the son one, other than I think no. Michael, uh, you know, has a thing for son early on, at least as far as he's written.
3: Uh, just, uh, like, give it to the pregnant lady! Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Yes, he might be a little perturbed by the fact that she's going through dead people's things, but that's an activity. And you have to imagine that she has some sort of maternal instincts to her.
2: What? Talk to Hurley! Hurley seems nice. Hurley yeah. seems like a normal person. Maybe Saeed? Saeed
3: seems like he's got his shit together yeah or hang out with Jack, hang out with Rose, say go go hang out with the lady who's sitting by herself. maybe you can have a nice chat between the two of you. so is the bottom of this list and Michael starts with the bottom for some reason
2: stay with the doctor uh and then for Jordan's question about why Michael has such a dislike for Locke I don't know I don't know that if I had just like reunited with my very estranged son who had just lost his mother and now I've crashed on an island and barely just found my dog that I would be so excited about my like 10 or 11 year old estranged son hanging out with the creepy old guy with all the knives uh I do think that that would probably freak me out so Michael's dislike for for Locke may be a little strong, but
3: his distrust of the guy, I feel like it's not unfair. I personally think it just stems from jealousy. I mean, this is a guy who came from a fatherly figure before his mother died, and Michael is now fully enveloping him for the first time in his life. Like, great, I'm going to be your father. And Walt's like, great, no thanks. He's another older guy who's fun. I think that that breeds a little bit of, you know, bad feelings in Michael. of Like, this is the one thing that I've looked forward to being for such a long time, and now I'm being denied it once again. We are literally on an island together. I need to take advantage of this. So I I do wonder if there's a little bit of that in there, of him so desperate to connect with his son that he's instantly having bad feelings towards the person that Walt is doing a much better job of connecting to than him.
2: All right, other number eight. This is a top-secret missive regarding 1B Nadler. This Ooh. is addressed to—it's to, from Steve from San Jose, and it's addressed to Colonel Wiggler and Private Bloom. I don't know why you're so low on the totem pole, Mike.
3: I think uh, that that entirely makes sense.
2: I mean, I don't know why I'm a colonel, but I'll take it, and Mike— It's because you're uh, so good with
3: the popcorn.
2: You're going to have <laughs> to—all right, Mike, drop it. Give me 23. Uh, all right, uh, Steve from San Jose writes in and says, I hope this email is secure. Maneuvers are a go for episode four, Walkabout. Locke was my favorite character on Lost the first time I watched it, so this episode was fun to revisit. However, my comment and question is about the conversation that Jack has with Rose in this episode. Do you think the Lost writers already had plans this early that the tail section passengers, such as Bernard, would survive? Or is this just a scene that they remembered when they were writing season two? I'm more inclined to believe the latter, but curious to know what you you think, or maybe have heard from people about this. Uh, and Mike, uh, as pointed out once again by the Ben behind the curtain, he he points us in the direction of Javier Grio watches, Lost Will and Testament. And in the Lost Will and Testament, Javi says that the concept of the Tailies landing on a different part of the island was created in the early days of the writers' room between Ooh. the writing of the pilot and Tabula Rasa. Tabula Rasa, Mike. Uh, so while there is no guarantee. That they would actually deliver a tail section plot. That scene was definitely written with the idea on the table.
3: All right, so we can officially confirm that tailies were in the minds of the Lost writers. So this is unlike the Locke smoke monster coincidental connection. This was fully intended for Rose's uh, words to be completely true.
2: And I, I believe in the Lost will and testament. Javi talks about like because he once he left Lost, he didn't really keep up with it too much. But people would tell him what was going on. And, like, he would find out about, like, the, the, the you know, Jacob and the man in black and all that. So I was like, that's news to me. So <laughs> those are those are later stage things. Uh, while we're on the topic of the Rose and Jack conversation, Jordan from Wisconsin notes that in this conversation, we get another glimpse of Jack the pilot when he tells Rose that it's the altitude that would cause Bernard's fingers. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't know if you realize that. I'm a bit of a fly guy myself. And the elves, you'd often make your fingers swell. Hope that makes yeah. you feel better.
2: Uh, all right. So talking about Jack and his bedside manner, uh, Ben Martell writes in and says, this is for other number nine, uh, that Jack says any bodies we bury aren't going to stay buried. But it turns out later in whatever the case may be that he buried the marshal. Um, we never see him do that, and I'm wondering the timeline of when he would have done that maybe-, oh. maybe that explains why Jack is like running in from out of nowhere in the <sighs> middle of the dark at the start of walkabout
3: or could it have been the boar
2: yeah, it's the boar the did they boar. had a he had a boreal yeah, he had a boreal he, he boreed the marshal uh God, that's so. St- <laughs> yeah, and ben, and ben also says, Saeed presents as a practicing Muslim and in the Muslim faith, a normal expectation is burial within 24 hours. Saeed is being sensitive to cultural needs and talking about burial, but Jack doesn't have to, time to care except for the guy that he euthanized. What gives Jack? Uh, just further evidence that Jack Shepard's kind of an a-hole. Well, uh, the Jackass nickname is earned.
3: I do wonder as well, you know, we'll talk about Jack's lack of faith. I wonder if his agnosticism or... Right out atheism was shown here when he's talking about like uh the deserve doesn't matter here there's people who died and people who did it and he's talking about you know not necessarily condoning to anyone's faiths i do wonder if he's just a person who's just like i don't believe in that stuff so why should it matter to you
2: yeah i think that that might be right um all right other number 10 a first look at leadership As a theme, Jonathan Krause writes in, This is really an episode about leadership and the kinds of leaders that Jack and Locke are. It's obvious on the first watch, but it becomes much more powerful if you know where the show is going from here. Jack is constantly avoiding leadership in this episode, but it keeps being thrust upon him, foisted even. Uh, Meanwhile, Locke desperately desires the validation of being seen as a leader. His inward need to be seen as special, a leader, and someone with greater destiny is ultimately what makes him so easy to manipulate by the man in black. It's great with regards to the series as a whole, that John Locke's fatal flaw is on such blatant display in his first true episode of the series.
3: Yeah, it's fantastically put. And I love the fact that, much like a lot of things in life, you know, when you arduously seek something out oftentimes that thing doesn't come to you it's when you least expect it and it's things that this position falls into Jack's lap when he doesn't necessarily want it whereas someone like Locke is adamantly pursuing it and doesn't get it in the end it's it's an unfortunate folly of life but it's shown here as well other number
2: 11 Glenn Sonata has a question for us and says, I have a question about the castaway extras that you see in the background shots. Do you guys know if these background actors remain the same throughout the majority of the show? Well, uh, there's one we're going
3: to be paying a lot of attention to after this podcast
2: Sarah Stripes. We've got Sarah 70
3: Stripes. That's her.
2: Sarah Stripes. All right. Ben Martel says, uh, in response to that, has some information to, to deliver. Once again, the great Ben behind the curtain uh, says that there are 33 background survivors of the fuselage plane section. While there are some background players who turn up later and aren't present in season one, the bulk of the background cast first appeared in season one and remained the same until they're seen or at least assumed deaths. And their appearances can be tracked throughout the show. A number of them died when the barracks were attacked in season four, a large number more in the arrow attack of season five, and many of them turn up again in season six's LAX as passengers on the plane in the Flash sideways. Six of them have known appearances in every season, and another 13 or so appear in at least four seasons. And there's a great breakdown of these background players on Lostpedia that we will absolutely link to in our show notes.
3: And I believe, actually, I'm looking here, Sarah Stripes is on it!
2: Amazing. Does she have a name according to Lost Media?
3: Her name is Sexy Blue Striped Shirt Girl.
2: All right, we're going with Sarah Stripes.
3: <laughs> I can't believe it. We're not going. doing that.
2: It's 2019.
3: <gasps> Clean
2: it up, folks. Oh, my She gosh. has a name and it's Sarah. It's Sarah Stripes to it's you. Sarah Stripes to you. Uh, other number 12, we're just bagging on Randy Nations here, where Eric Duvestein is in here and says, I'd like to nominate Randy for all of the negative points in this episode. Maybe save one for Shannon. Uh, and Zaddy Terran also wrote in and said, If you had to guess, what do you think Randy's doing in 2019? I don't know, Zaddy Terran building boxes, yeah. hating his life.
3: Building boxes and then, like, like uh, browsing, browsing 4chan every other hour or so to check out what the incels are doing.
2: Yeah, incel Randy. Uh, Randy King of incel nations. Uh, uh, we, we will not uh, spoil the, the 21 points section, but we're getting there. And, Eric, you will not be disappointed. Uh, other number 13. Uh, we're getting some updates on the counts that we are tracking here throughout down the Hatch of the Lost Rewatch podcast. Patricia Riley has started a color coded Sawyer nickname chart. Mike, did you see this?
3: Yeah, I really do enjoy it. So, Patricia basically is going through and saying who got nicknamed and what did they get nicknamed. And we're going to see, so not only the nicknames that Sawyer uses, but how often he uses them. For example, he's going to go back to the well a lot with Freckles and Doc. So, it'll be interesting to see by series or even season's end how many times he's used those stalwart names. Uh all right, so we'll we'll link to that in the show notes. Patricia has that
2: updated through to uh tabula rasa. Uh I was gonna say tabula rasa, which somebody uh said on, on Twitter in, in
3: Fijian means the dad life. Ah, see, it's just it's just in my DNA now, so it just came out naturally in my tongue. Yeah, Mike
2: Bloom living that tabula rasa every day. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Uh Jack Lindelof had suggested a Walt man count. Uh, is that every time that Walt is described as man well, by I Michael? Think it, yeah, it's or like it's, it's, are we
3: counting like his slow growth into becoming a man? <laughs> I think it's when Michael refers to Walt as man. Like, come on, man. Let It'll be fine. Go get babysat by this topless woman.
2: If, uh, some, if somebody wants to count how many times Michael calls Walt, Walt or man, or just says the word Walt or man, I would not be opposed to somebody keeping track of that. Ooh, I will Walt, not be the person. The Waltman count. <laughs> the Waltman count. Uh, Down Servo giving us the update on the dude count. Hurley has now said dude 13 times. Oh, an unlucky number for an about. unlucky man. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jonathan Krauss, who is keeping track of our amputees. <laughs> so, <on dark. laughs> Lost, which is very dark. Uh, John Krauss says that even though Norman Croucher, he's never actually seen. On screen, he should still get half points in the amputee count for being mentioned. One half for each missing limb, so a full point given because he's a double amputee. So the amputee count at this point between the Peach Man Ray Mullen and Norman Croucher is up to two uh, (laughs) through Walkabout, which is a surprise to me Yeah, uh, that we're already at two.
3: Three less limbs in four episodes is a pretty meaty metric lost.
2: Fitzy wants to start tracking Jack's doctor snark. Uh, Like every time he is just being like a real holier than thou doctor, uh, where he says in the pilot, "like you should really think
3: about getting that license back,"
2: or in uh, in Tabula Rasa, where he tells Sawyer, "you
3: missed." All right, right after, have, sorry,
2: I him in the try to shoot him in the heart. Yeah,
3: that that might be a thing we'll put for like the eight sounds if there's like an 8.5 sound maybe we'll throw it in there. But yeah, it's good to track some uh some Jack's classic Dr. Snark because he definitely does speaking back to his bedside manner. He's not great communicating with his fellow operators either. No. And Jordan from
2: Wisconsin is doing some great work uh collating all of these different counts. Uh so we will uh we will tweet out a link to the single document where all of these counts are being posted Um, other number 14 we got a lot of really nice stuff Uh, a lot of you know you know we're we're really you know we can't read through every single thing that we are getting from people uh, like the personal stories the personal anecdotes the really touching uh, notes that Mike and I are getting but we want you to know we're reading them, and it is—it's—it's—it's uh, really—it's uh, really wonderful to connect with you people in this way, and, and just to know that this show meant so much to you, and that even just like having this goofy podcast in your weekly life is reigniting some of that stuff you so we want to give a shout out to Phoebe Nugent who sent in an email and shared their story it was about um the numbers Hurley's numbers and the recitation of the numbers uh and how that helped her out in her own life uh and uh it's it's a really great story and Phoebe if we have your permission I'd love to read that when we get closer uh further along in the series just send us an email if that's okay and if not that's also okay uh but I think it would be it would be nice to read that uh when we reach numbers uh a few weeks from now
3: yeah and I'm very intrigued to see, you know, people sending a lot of great feedback for this week specifically as well. This is a very important episode for a lot of people, especially those that were watching Lost at the time. And I just love everyone coming together around this show. You know, we're, we're in some really high points of the series right now. And it just really brings you back to 2004 when everyone was watching this show for the first time and having their minds simultaneously blown. It's a real communal feeling at a time where we didn't really have that many things to really communicate, you know, around the world uh there's people
2: who are watching with their kids people who are getting their kids involved uh maybe not in the podcast but at least like watching with lo- watching with them uh watching lost with them for the first time bob with two b's uh is uh ha- is watching lost with his nine-year-old daughter right now uh apparently his favorite quote from her right now is i hope i never do
3: drugs well <laughs> that's great though lindelof yeah. talking cues you turn your kid away from drugs so yes. that's mission accomplished i guess
2: Good work. Uh, Tomer wrote in and said, "I'm doing the rewatch with my 15 year old daughter. It's her first time. We just finished Walkabout, and so far, so good. Her favorite character is Vincent, <laughs> and she and she says if anything happens to Vincent, she is
3: out. Well, so, Vincent will be out for quite a yeah. while, so I don't know if that's gonna how that's gonna yeah. pretend to her watching. Uh, as
2: long as Vincent's okay, and that was always the thing. Lindelof and Ques were always like really upfront. They're like, Vincent will survive the series. That's the one character we will confirm." will make it. We got a really nice review on uh, on iTunes. Again, please, your your ratings and reviews, not only touching, uh, but actually help us get found in the iTunes charts and on these other charts on all these different podcast apps of choice. So it's really not nothing. If you haven't rated and reviewed us yet, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps us find uh, more people find our podcast. We all want to find each other. But Spike Love 51 had written in and said, Josh and Mike are the ones. I just listened to the intro podcast and I'm on board for the full run, no matter how many years. I've rewatched Lost so many times because, like Josh, it brings me comfort in dark times. Being back on the island is comfort, and I can already tell this is going to be a fun ride. Heck, they had me in tears playing playing some of these moments. I can hear a telephone ringing or a piece of music, and I'm back there with Charlie or Desmond, reliving the whole scene thanks to the storm for suggesting this podcast what generosity i have room for both let's go down the hatch and i want to reiterate that that joanna robinson gave a really really nice plug for us uh on a recent episode of the storm the lost podcast which once again if you're not listening to that really really smart uh, analysis and really funny rapport between the three hosts and they have guest hosts that come on every once in a while um really really great podcast if you're just looking to bolster out uh your lost podcast listening right now
3: Absolutely. And we do have another number fifteen, but I think we're gonna save it for a little later. Let's all be good leaders and have a bit of patience. That's something we will definitely address in just a little bit.
2: All right. Other number fifteen we are going to hold on to until we have established some other business here. Uh first we got the twenty-three points to get through here this week, Mike. We are assigning our MVP and LVP points. This week, uh, I have two MVP points to assign. Mike, you've got three. Uh, and then, Mike, you've got two LVP points to assign. And I have three LVP points. The current tally coming in to walkabout, the tally hassey, uh, is Kate is leading the pack with four. Jack Shepard at two. Saeed is tied with him at two. The Smoke Monster here with a point. The Peach Man Ray Mullen. Clocking in at a point. Seth Norris, the brother of Chuck and John, negative one points. The Marshall also lost a point. Those two lost points for dying. Uh, Boone, uh, negative two. Michael, negative two. Sawyer at negative three. We haven't knocked points from Shannon yet? Well,
3: maybe it'll happen. Every dog has its day. Every dog has
2: its day, except for Vincent will make it. All right, Mike, you have the first MVP point to award... This episode, are you going to keep us in suspense or just make this easy?
3: Let's make it short and sweet. I'm giving two MVP points to John Locke this week.
2: All right. Add a third point from Josh Wiggler onto John Locke, and we're getting him on the board, immediately rising into second place. Uh, with three points total for John Locke here. No-brainer, right? Do we need no. to enumerate all the reasons? No-brainer.
3: I mean, listening to the past three hours of podcasting, <laughs> if you <want> know. <laughs> yeah, it was a you got bang, it. banger of an opening for John Locke for an infinitely complicated and interesting character that I cannot wait to dig more into over the next several years.
2: Alright, so that basically meant that you and I had like an additional MVP point to hand out, unless we were gonna go all the way in unlock MVP points, which I considered. Uh, I also considered giving MVP points to GL twelve, but I thought that that was just too cute. Uh uh it would have been fun to to give uh the, the and it maybe it would have worked out if it had been Forrest Whitaker, but since it was not, uh I'm gonna give a point to my monster man, Smoky mm. McSmokerson. I'm gonna give a point to this week because we're doing the headcanon thing of the monsters courting John Locke at this point and doing a very effective job at that. So literally just in terms of the monsters' long con, this is one of the earliest and most critical steps in that plan that almost works if it wasn't for those pesky kids. <laughs> uh, so give give the monster a point, and he is now tied with Jack and Said with two points.
3: I'm going to be a bit of a surprise here, but I'm going to give a point to a character who only got named in this episode. I'm giving a point to Claire Littleton. For Walkabout, I think her gesture in not only coming up with the idea, but also leading uh, a, a eulogy for the mass amounts of people that died in the Oceanic Crash was very sweet and humanitarian on Claire's part hinting to her character a little bit outside of the fact that she's pregnant I think it was a real MVP move especially since her half-brother didn't want to do it she took the responsibility on her own shoulders as emotionally hefty as it might be and she delivered a pretty powerful nighttime speech so I gotta give it to Claire for a great initiative
2: I'll take it I I like that pick I think this is a great episode for Claire uh one of my favorite Claire moments of the whole series so an MVP point for Claire. All right. So the MVP points go as follows. Mike's first goes to Locke. My second goes to Locke. Mike's Mike's second or Mike's first goes to Locke. My first goes to Locke. Mike's second goes to Locke, and that's three for Locke. My second MVP point goes to the Monster Man, and Mike's last MVP point goes to Claire Littleton. All right. LVP points. I'll kick us off and let's get her on the board, Shannon. Uh, that was just that was really cruel cool what you did yeah. to uh, to Charlie. That was un, that was uncool. I'm yeah, not a fan I, of that.
3: I mean, listen, it's a brand of manipulative that us reality TV loving people kind of enjoy. If it watching. was Survivor,
2: a different story. Yeah. But
3: these, you've got a lot on the line, people. Yeah, and I think that her just being sort of like smug about it as well. And, you know, her when Boone comes back is like, hey, I think that guy John Mokta, she's like, well, did he bring back food? It's pre- even more callous than Jack was this episode, I think. I know that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, but... Say at least, "Oh, I'm sorry" for Shannon.
2: All right, who do you got for your second uh, or your first LVP point?
3: The Boars.
2: <laughs> Is it because of the reasons that I typically uh, award? Like, because the Boar died? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get, they,
3: they get a little bit of death points there. Uh,
2: I, I think mean, if you if you die in an episode of loss, like you're an immediate candidate to lose some points.
3: Yeah, and I would also say that the fact that they injured Charlie and Michael. Over the course of the episode, you know, you might give some karma and take away some karma for those characters, but I don't know. And the fact that we never really hear much from the boars again, maybe like one other time in season one, but that's a wrap on the boars. As opposed to like the polar bear is interesting and a fun mystery, right? The boars are just the boars. So, I, feel, and like, they're, and I they're, feel like they're a I bit of like, a boar, to be quite honest. I feel like
2: we might get, to my mind, one more God's honest shot at a pig. Uh, in an LVP right? category, it, I think it, I, I think it might happen.
3: <laughs> but for right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it that minus one. All right, give me Randy.
2: Uh, I'm gonna take two points. My yeah, my two give, remaining LVP. Throw a third on. Let's let yes. pile on Randy. Screw you, Randy. If we're gonna throw three MVPs on lock, we gotta take three LVPs and <laughs> put them on Randy. Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to snap him out of existence. So. Uh, the reasons are obvious. Randy's a douche. Uh, yeah. and that's it. Thumbs down for Randy. So in one episode,
3: um, Randy, Ty Sawyer in the bottom of our MVP, LVP rankings here.
2: He's the worst. He's a terrible person. Uh, Josh B wanted us to get the ball rolling on him, getting some negative points. Uh, consider it that. rolled. Consider it rolled. All right, uh, so that's the twenty three points. We'll get to the the fifteenth other soon enough i want to I want to talk about something else. you know we we kind of yada yada through it quickly last week because we had more pressing matters on the mind that obviously, as we've come this far, we are feeling a little more relaxed in, uh, but that's the matter of ranking the episodes of Lost. As we go. And I think that this is going to be a kind of difficult exercise, especially the deeper we get into it. Mike, before we got on the podcast, we were talking about this a little bit more. And you were talking about like the moment where like we're trying to say like, is Par Avion a better episode than like, I don't know, Enter 7-7? Like this is a, this is a, we've really got to spend 20 minutes talking this through. We don't really want to do that.
3: So it might just be easier for us to rate an episode, and then we can just compare numerically. The numbers don't lie, and so if we just compare them against other episodes, we should come up with a fundamental list by that.
2: All right, so we're coming up with a new section that we're talking about as 4.2 stars. It's a rating for each episode, and the way that this is going to work is that Mike and I are going to deliver our scores on a scale of 1 to 4.2, uh, an arbitrary end point for any other <laughs> Roger exercise. Ebert is rolling over in his grave right now, just so you know. Yeah. So 1 to 4.2 stars. I guess you could go to zero if you really wanted to. Uh, but 1 to 4.2 stars is what we are ranking each episode on. Mike and I will each have our own scores. And then if you want to write in, you, yes, you, whoever is listening to this, want to write into the Down the Hatch feedback email, down the hatch at com and spell out very clearly how you rate the episode on a scale of 1% from from 1 to 4.2 we will average the scores of the listeners we will then uh average that one you know piece of data to the to to my score to mike's score these three data points and that will give us the official down the hatch ranking rating numerical value for the given episode of loss because that's just what we need here on down the hatch mike we need another segment Yes, uh, very important. So,
3: so it's got it. So, it's obviously decimal points are included, right? But we're going like to tenth of a decimal point. So, like point, essentially zero point zero to four point two is our rating.
2: That's our rating. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you you want it to be like a like a three point three, a two point three, if you want to get cute with the lost numbers. Uh, however, you want to do it. It's obviously arbitrary and reductive, but we're gonna have a good time doing it anyway. Um, so we got to we got to apply it. To Walkabout. And I think before we start doing that with Walkabout, and we'll retroactively do it with the pilot and Tabula Rasa as well, uh, there are a lot of people who are trying to make the case that Walkabout is the best episode of Lost. Uh, John Ross had written in and said that you guys had discussed whether the pilot would stand as the best season one episode. Mike offered Exodus. As a counterpoint, and I'm surprised that neither of you brought up Walkabout, which for my money is in the conversation, for the best episode of the series. I think this is the episode that establishes what the series is and how its episode format can be used to tell a surprising and powerful story. Uh, That's from John Ross and the great Jessica Leese. Uh, wrote in with a hot take that I don't think is too hot. Like I think it's yeah. a great take. Yeah. Jessica Lee's wrote in and said, "I'm sure I have nothing constructive to add," which I doubt, Jess. Uh, but Jess says, "But my Lost hot take is that this is the best episode of the entire se- uh, series. This is an hour of perfect television. You don't even need to have seen the rest of the series to love it. The show was never better than this." Uh, so walk about. It. It's an episode that's sometimes in the discussion for the best episode. Let's discuss it. Is this the best episode of Lost?
3: it's really tough. I think it just depends on what you look at in the show. You know, when we were doing the episode rankings back in the day, uh, we were debating whether or not the constant or through the looking glass was the best episode. And I remember uh, you and Antonio make it made a point of saying that the constant is a great episode of television, but does it represent lost? And what Jess is alluding to is I think, Walkabout is a great standalone representation of what Lost is in terms of who people were before the island, the powers of the island, what people can be on the island. And if you just look at that as a standalone, I think it is probably the best crystallized episode of Lost there is. I personally still just have a a big hankering towards Exodus because I think it has everything in it and it wraps things up so nicely and and on such an emotional note, whereas Walkabout is a little bit of a simpler story. So I feel like Exodus goes for the more complicated gymnastics routine and sticks the landing, whereas Walkabout just does something very simple but remarkable. But, I mean, it's definitively top five for me, maybe even top three. I, You know what? I think, when I think about
2: like my favorite episode of Lost, like if I was just going to devote some time to sitting down and just randomly watching Lost, uh, Exodus does come very close to front of mind for me. And I've said in the past that that's my favorite episode of Lost. And I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, and I think that, like, listen, we're talking about some elite episodes of television. I think that even the worst episodes of this show uh, still have merit baked within them. There are scenes, at least, that are really, really good in the worst episodes. Um, so so to say what is, like, the best episode of, of Lost, it's hard for me. Um... I I think that what what's going to happen here is very often I'm going to be giving full four point twos out of four point twos for some episodes because <laughs> you're it's just so be too, soft. <laughs> it's it's uh, listen you've touched my hands they're very soft they all very soft. Uh, I, I I think that there's just going to be some episodes that I'm going to give perfect scores because I have to because uh, I I'm I'm really at a loss at finding the faults. And there's already two on the board for me. Uh, I'm going to, you know, retroactively, a 4.2 out of 4.2 for the pilot. I'm going to give a 4.2 out of 4.2 for Walkabout. uh, And I will let you, Mike, and the listeners, as they compile their scores, uh, weigh in on that to to help even the tide here. But I, I, I suspect... And what I hope is what we're gonna wind up with here is like I think we'll we'll wind up with like noticeable tiers yep. of um of like of episodes like what's like elite status, what's what's excellent, what's very good, what's good. You know, like I, I think like we will we will get there uh and break things down that way. I will say, just to tease it out, you know, nine twenty-two uh, is going to be the fifteen year anniversary of the lost pilot, and I am currently working Uh, This is for you down the hatch listeners on a revision of those lost episode rankings that I had done for MTV about five years ago. So I'm revising my episode rankings five years later. And I think in some regards, it's going to look very similar to the original rankings. I'm not I'm not revisiting them. I'm doing it on feel. So there may be some ways where it's very meaningfully different because I'm not going to look back at what I did before. Um, And I do think that my top spot's going to change. My top spot was Exodus the last time I did this. I think that there's a very compelling case that Walkabout's the best episode of Lost.
3: I mean, it's a pretty damn perfect episode of television because you obviously you remember all the Lost stuff, which is just a fantastic 42 minute characterization of this brilliant character and one of the best twists I've seen in storytelling history. And you still have a lot of other great stuff on the side. You know, you have the hints of Jack really coming to terms with being a leader and initially turning down the position. Uh, you have, you know, Charlie and Hurley starting to build their friendship and get into some mischief. You have some of Shannon being the worst. It's like a nice little sampling of all the great stuff Lost has to offer with a fantastic entree, just a big old piece of meat that you want to dig into because it's so deliciously cooked.
2: Uh, so I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Walkabout four point two. Uh, I'm gonna give Pilot 4.2. I'm gonna give Tabula Rasa uh, uh, like a, a nice solid 3.5. I think it has some like very important setup stuff. I think it's got some really good scenes in it. I think just like in the grand scheme, we don't think about it quite as often. It's got a remarkable ending. Uh, maybe like 3.5 feels like a little low, but I don't think that it's that low. Uh, I think that it will not be in the upper echelon of season one when we get there uh when when we get through this thing but i think that there's definitely going to be season one episodes that rank a lot lower than a 3.5
3: yeah and so that being said again you all send in you all everybody send in your 4.2 star rankings ratings for the three episodes we've talked about so far if you want to send one in for white rabbit as well preemptively go ahead, but get used to doing that habitually so we can uh, throw it in the old adding machine, and as it makes an ominous printing noise, we'll get it all tallied up.
2: Mike, and what were your official scores for Pilot, Walkabout, and Tabula Rasa? Uh,
3: I'm going to give Walkabout 4.2. I'm going to give Pilot... Let's give it a 4.1. Why not? There, was, there were some very uh very two-dimensional characterizations where I feel like we could have concentrated on maybe some more characters instead of focusing around just a core amount. Tabula Rasa, I'll give, I don't know, let, let's say 3.4. Let's go a little okay. bit lower than you. Just because I'm having trouble finding a rubric at this point. I feel like once I do, it'll get a little more uh, substantial in my mind, but I'm just going off of my gut right now.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the Peach Man is carrying a, a pretty Absolutely. clean 3.2%. <laughs> 3.2 yeah, of that 3.4. The, the Peach Bump is significant. Uh, peach Bump is significant. All right, as we're starting to wrap up, let's look ahead at the final other that we did not uh discuss in the other section. This is other number 15 and this is about this is about the time limit. This yeah. is so 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 about the time limit. So, uh lost down the hatch, you're guaranteed 42 minutes of conversation about lost, but it's going to be a maximum of a hundred and eight minutes conversation about lost, or else there are consequences. How did we do this week, Mike?
0: Podcast failure. Podcast failure. Wiggler failure. Mike Bloom Failure.
3: Not great. All right.
2: All right. <laughs> I think that's just gonna happen. Yeah, uh, it's an
3: eventuality.
2: I think we you know what? I think like John Locke, we gotta embrace our fate and have some faith in the process, and have some faith in the fact that this podcast is going to be what it wants to be. Don't tell this podcast what it can and can't do. Some days it's going to be a three-hour podcast. Other days it'll be a 16-hour podcast. Uh, If we get an episode of Lost Down the Hatch that is less than 108 minutes, it's going to be a great cause for celebration uh, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. So a lot of people had written in uh, with suggestions uh, and and also just comments about the 108-minute rule. <laughs> Namely, I hate it. Yeah, we had uh, Chris Brannigan, I hate it. I hate the 108-minute rule. If it's less than two hours, is it even an RHAP podcast? Uh, David Carlson said, I don't like the 108-minute gimmick. Please talk about Lost forever. Uh, and, and then Craig Falkenheim said, can we just agree that every episode of this podcast is going to be longer than 108 minutes? I'm not complaining. I'm just keeping it real. Uh, and Martinez, uh, not of Survivor South Africa, uh, wrote in and said, maybe it would work to change between 42 and 108 minute rule to between 108 and 316 minutes, which is the Ajira flight
3: number. Uh, that's longer than five hours. I don't think that we're going to go five hours. No, I think that what we've learned is if you give us a limit, we are going to break it. Josh. I think that that's right.
2: Uh, so I think we will, we will, uh, for now embrace the inevitability of spinning the frozen donkey wheel. Uh, the frozen donkey wheel currently has, uh, some options that will become, if we land on the frozen donkey wheel, if we land on specific spokes, we owe you bonus content, Uh, There are a couple of options that give us some outs. We will play the current iteration of the frozen donkey wheel all the way down to the end of the line. And then when we are finished with the eight spokes, we're going to reconceive. We're going to regroup. We're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna live that dad life, taboo la rasa, and, and wipe the slate clean, and come up with uh, maybe come up with something that's a little more user friendly, but is still fun, so that we can make sure that we're getting some good bonus stuff your way. But maybe something that's a little less punishing on Mike and I, because uh, I don't think a hun- I don't think less than 108 minutes is going to happen very often. And I think that we're pretty happy with the way that we're doing this right now. So do we, we don't really want to change much. We really only want to add stuff.
3: So let's uh, let me run down quickly what we're doing for the wheel since we're going to spin it once again. So our first option is special. Where a special guest is going to come on to down the hash to talk about a specific topic about Lost. We have orientation which is Josh and myself and a guest will take a part in some additional reading or viewing, whether it's, you know, a book that was seen on Lost, a uh, piece of pop culture that was, you know, created in Lost merchandise, and then just report back on it. Uh, we always have the skip option, which allows us to essentially spin again. We have the aforementioned Lindelof, which is a song parody contest, much like the Wand Off on the Wiggle Room Survivor podcast. It's essentially the Lost equivalent of that we listen to a bunch of lost parody songs, and the winner gets a prize. There's Push Execute, which is our fail safe, where we just need to push the button, and we're done. We don't need to do anything. There is Question Mark, which is a mystery option that shall remain uncovered on the Blast Door until we seek it out once that option is selected. And, of course, there is Follow the Leader, which is Josh I getting to pick whatever we want from the Frozen Donkey Wheel, except for Skip. And Push Execute, we already have in the books our Walkabout, our RPG version of Lost, played with the great R-Philly. We are planning to record that and get that out to you soon. But the options I just outlined are the ones we are choosing between.
2: Yes, and when an option is taken off the board, it is replaced with the skip option. So one is special, two is usually Walkabout or has been Walkabout. It is currently a skip option, so if we land on two, we got to skip Uh, If we land on three on the frozen donkey wheel, that's orientation. If we land on four, it's a skip. If we land on five, you get the Lindelof. If it's six, it's push execute and we're safe. If it's seven, it's the question mark. And important to note that the current iteration of the question mark is going to expire before the end of September. So we only have a little bit of time to trigger that. Uh, And if we trigger that, it's going to suspend the 108 minute rule uh, and it's going to kill the frozen donkey wheel for the foreseeable future as the question mark plays out over some time. Uh, And then eight is assigned to follow the leader um all right mike uh as you say the walkabout podcast the lost rpg is coming your way soon we are recording that this coming weekend expect it next week uh early on before we get to the white rabbit podcast uh but let's find out what else we're buying this week mike do you want to spin the wheel (laughs) and we we land on two again, uh, which is a skip. They they, they really want us to have that number. (laughs) Yeah, they like the two. All right. So if we skip, we got to spin the wheel one more time. Let's get another spin going here. (laughs) Stop right there. Oh, no. Goodness. Wow! You're... Four
3: episodes in, and we triggered a song parody contest for our podcast.
2: All right, the Lindelof has been triggered, and Wandoff haters who are listening to Down the Hatch are also triggered <laughs> uh, because we have we have we have landed on the Lindelof, which means the Lindelof is going to happen. All right, here's how the Lindelof is going to work. It is a parody song. Competition you are to write and record and send in to down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com your lost parody songs uh when we get enough and when we get enough of a certain quality level, and please don't be too offended if you do not meet that amorphous criteria down the line when we get enough of a certain quality level, we are just going to ambush you at some point with a Lindelof. We're going to go really long on a podcast we're going to get to that point where we're supposed to spin the frozen donkey wheel. And instead, what's going to happen is you're going to get Lindeloft, And we are going to do an impromptu song parody competition that week with the song parodies that you are submitting between now and then. We want those song parodies to pertain specifically to the episodes of Lost that we are discussing uh, and have discussed so far. So right now, anything from the pilot to walk about is eligible uh in the weeks ahead. Any episode that we're talking about is eligible until we get to that Lindeloft when we ambush you with it. Uh it's gonna be really ridiculous and super funny and I'm very excited about
3: it. I mean the Wandoff has shown how creative Survivor fans can be. I hope that crosses over into Lost. I'm sure we will see or hear some familiar faces over the course of Lindolf and maybe some new people as well. If any Lost fans want to come out of the woodwork and send us songs, listen, all are welcome no matter what your musical ability. We all love the show. We all love singing stupid songs about this show. We're going to take anything. So again, Email that to us down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. and I would say, as Josh says, it could happen at any point soon, sooner rather than later, if you get inspired, write something down, sing it, send it, and we cannot wait to listen to it.
2: All right, sing it, send it. We can't wait to listen to it. There's a hat on the line. you'll get a we're we're coming up with a with a wombat station hat that will be on the line for the winner of the first Lindelof uh coming your way. In uh, the TBD amount of weeks from now, uh, but it, it will it will be here, and you will be uh, you will be blown away for better and for worse. All right, that is going to do it here on Down the Hatch this week. Uh, talking about walkabout, uh, almost as long as we went on the two-hour pilot, Mike.
3: Yeah, which is look, it's a very important episode of the show next week. I'm assuming we'll get back to another tabula rasa. S-length, but still an important episode, Josh. We're getting into White Rabbit. We find out a bit more about Kristen Shepard, Jack's relationship to him and his death, and we get a little bit of uh, Jack in the throes of alcoholism, and a bit more as to why he was so uh, damn belligerent with Cindy the Stewardess on the plane about the little vodka bottles.
2: All right, so we are going to be dropping that episode on September 13th. Uh, we will record that like a couple days before that. You will you will do the, you will will do, be doing us a, a huge solid if you can get your feedback into us by, I would say like afternoon of September 10th, morning of 9-11, however that works for you. You can send your feedback, questions, and comments for the 15 and 16 other sections at Post Show recaps at RoundHoward, at a Mike Bloom type, down the hatch at PostShowRecaps.com is our email address. Subscribe to Down the Hatch on your podcast app of choice. Postshowrecaps.com slash Down the Hatch will get you to our iTunes page. Your ratings, your reviews are supremely appreciated. Um, Mike, I mean, the Lindelof is at some point down the line, but we actually did get our first Lindelof submission this week. Uh, We did actually get this little ditty From a great Wandoff artist, prolific Wandoff artist on RHAP in the Wiggle Room, Bob, with two Bs, about Walkabout. And I feel like with the announcement of a Lindelof forthcoming, it's only fair to give you all a little tease of what that may sound like. So this is the first uh, not quite official Lindelof of Down the Hatch, but a little taste of the shape of things to come. Until next week, everybody, take care.
4: I'm going to walk about This Randy Nation's asshole couldn't hold me back I'm like an Eagle Scout Because I've got 42 knives packed And I'm talking to Helen at night But I seem to forget That the number that I dialed Travel agent, the dice says go back home. I'm gonna walk about, leave behind my wheelchair forevermore. I'm gonna flex my clout, make the blood drip out of every board. we hey, th-